They got Freddy. Looks like he's hit pretty bad. Damn that deep sort in the hell. What would you do in his place? He gave his word. Gave his word to a railroad. It's his word! That ain't what counts! It's who you give it to! Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is episode 29. <laughs> did, I, did I say it? You did. I you said, said it. it. I can't believe we're going to actually said, do I said this. The, I did the thing. I did the thing. I know. I said the word. We're back. In a, we're not back. We are still conferencing through the fiber wires and 5G coronavirus causing uh, technologies um, through Zoom. Oh, I didn't know I was co-hosting with Elon Musk. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, Amber Heard's over here, of course. And <laughs> oh, is she one of those else. people too? Well, no, they dated. Oh, right. Um, but no, we we have decided after five or six episodes, I think we started with Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yeah. And my... since then, we've done three of the director lookbacks, um, the Onward, Never, so four six episodes we've done six episodes away from the list in a row um because we had the three director look back the three you know lists mm-hmm. from bfi um the new movies, lady the week off and then and yeah the uh oh well yeah i didn't count the week off um but we decided that uh we're gonna we're gonna give it a shot we're gonna give it a shot um, see how it goes i'm sure there's gonna be multiple parts where tom will have to edit this in post because both of us can't hear each other, but uh, you know, what can you do? But I think people. I think what we've done here is we've gotten people used to the idea of unstable internet connections and our voices just kind of doing that weirdo internet thing where it goes and, and stuff like that. So surprisingly, comparing us to a lot of like podcasts or whatnot, I've listened to, um, which is no denigration on the podcasts themselves, because like this is a, a pretty wild and unique time. Uh, our, I have to give you credit, not me credit whatsoever. The, the sound has been pretty, pretty good. Like the stuff you can control. Oh um, yeah, I can imagine how much of an insanity it is to edit this. Like the sound cutting out. I don't do any of the editing whatsoever. I'm here to get drunk and bitch about movies. It's actually not so bad. It's only bad in terms of. And we were talking about this because I do this other podcast for my job now, um, for my library, and um, I know what all of my. Uh, I know what my ums look like in the audio file. So I can actually just go through. And when I see that shape, I can just go and like take it out. And so I know I have a lot of audio shapes of like things that you do all the time and things that I do all the time. So I can kind of place where things are. Mine are usually just blanks, right? Like I'm pretty sure my things are usually just I pause. You pause. Something else you do too, though, is you start you like after you stop, you come in really hard with like the first word. So there's always just like a push and then like a trail oh, like off. A pop. And yeah. then you just pause and just Yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's like it's a it's a real excitement that I've discovered the English language again. <laughs> okay, Tom. I think it's time that we do a thing we haven't done for two months. And I you're the one who who 
first got this, so I, I think maybe it's it's you who has the honor of introducing it. Bow, bow, bow. It is from New England Brewing Company because that is pretty much all I've been drinking recently. Um, and also, it just makes sense that we'd go back. That our first beer back would be a New England Brewing Company. Why not? Beer, yeah, right? we got to do it. We got to do it. Um, it is Stegosaurus. It is a double India pale ale. It is, uh, let me see, totally bright, totally shreddable, totally whoa. Tubular I mean, I, fruit I, I believe you should. I believe you should read that entire in that entire. Um, Dude, banging down a wicked awesome double IPA brewski that's got a totally rad flavor. Sick man. Totally bright. Totally shreddable. Totally whoa. Tubular fruit taste launch straight into your mouth. <laughs> your mouth hole, bro. Wicked crush it totally. Totally. <laughs> shreddable makes me think they're trying to say that's a totally crushable beer yeah i don't think any beer that's 8.2 percent should be closely advertised to, to shreddable and are possibly whether or not crushable. it is because you know they have had there's been double ipas that are totally crushable um, which is it's never a good thing no but yeah, yeah i think you're right you shouldn't just for like safety's sake you shouldn't say like you can destroy this yeah, it should be like, you want a four-pack of this? This is going to be a problem. In one night? Yeah. All right. Uh, d- dink it. Virtual <laughs> dinking. Fruit forward in the smell, the fragrance, which I don't don't love. Good job putting your phone on mute there, my, buddy. Uh, my wife texted me from the other room. You should never speak in that voice again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I agree. Thank you for your feedback. It's true. <laughs> I, um, did, I, I think did the classic is... Mario. I took a sip of a beer and didn't actually taste it. I mean, I think it's really good. I think it's tasty. Yeah, it's not as fruity as I was expecting. Um, no, but there is. You know what I'm kept. I keep. What's interesting? There's. Oh, a, sorry. Oh no. no I, there's um. There's something behind the flavor. I think the flavor is really good. Are you catching a pineapple? Like like a note there, some kind of like something underneath, like an under what the, what kind of pi- fruit is a pineapple? Like what's like the, uh, the tropical the, the, a tropical fruit? I mean, is that what well, that's no, like for, the blow pop sure. flavor? But um, you know, it's there's something no, going on. Under it's there. got it's got for sure a pineapple flavor. I usually mention other stone, not stone fruits. I usually measure, mention like other fruits. Like I'll go like it's from papaya, but no, this is definitely um. Beyond any of that, that's that's pineapple-y. Uh, but what's interesting about it is it's really, it's 45 IBUs, so it's it's pretty low on the um, bitterness, but it's got like a bitter pop to it in the front, mm. and then the kind of pineapple just kind of coats that, which is a... Uh, it's very subtle, but it's there, there's something there. Yeah, it's a subtle kind of like bitterness, but it's definitely slightly bitter. Well, I'm going to drink the crap out of it. I, that's safe. I have, that is safe I, to say. I mean, so my, hopefully this won't happen this episode, but it's very likely. <laughs> well, I held be- up a, uh, the rest of my four pack. The beauty of this is that I don't have to drive home tonight. So if Guess I want, what? if I want to do the same, I thing, don't either. Yeah. Thanks, coronavirus. I gotta drive to my bed. Well, right. to be fair, I am deep in the pivotal films towers, so I do have to jump on my Segway. Yeah. And travel, I believe, um, three point six kilometers to get to any. Um, sort of other room. Your life is a good life, but it's not an easy life. Let's just put it that way, Mario. It's true. I do have 
crazed writer directors living within the floors of my by the way, I talk about Richard Kelly, not not Lawrence Kasdan that time. Oh. Richard Richard Kelly uh, uh, of Southland Tales and Donnie Darko fame has also found himself That's, in again, the pivotal film. One Tower. of the, my most fun things about being a subscriber to Mubi, although I'm not a subscriber to the service, I mean just like to the notifications that you know they exist are uh, all the advertisements I get for the, the the fact that they have Southland Tales, and I'm just like, yeah, I don't want to watch Southland Tales. I'm fine. I think he's. I think he's trying to make a sequel to that. That's too bad. That is. He's, he's messing up hardcore there. But I was just going to a... say, dude, dude, I was reading an essay in the, in, I was reading my Roger Ebert great movies book and Lawrence Kasdan has a movie in there. Did you know that really? Body Heat is a, considered a great movie? Oh. Did you know that? That is, that's unfortunate. I forgot that. That makes me unhappy. And then I saw it, I, and I was like, oh, no, Roger Ebert. Body Heat? I think it makes me unhappy. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, okay, Body Heat is the movie I was thinking it was. Making sure it was the William Hurt, Kathleen Turner movie. Yeah. yeah, that's a bad movie. That's not a good movie, though. No. I mean, maybe it's good. I don't know. But when I saw it, I was just like, Ugh, I don't want to watch this. Okay, that's true. I watched that movie years ago. Maybe we'll have to reinvestigate just... Body Heat. Nah, I'm good. Yeah. I mean, sure. I- I'll rewatch it. What else am I going to do? Speaking of Body Heat, Mario. You like that one? Speaking of Body Heat. Not when it's in reference to (laughs) 17-year-olds. Oh, yeah. Damn it. I messed up. Um, You should do all the transitions from now on. Uh, (laughs) um, Netflix released a new movie. Um, This wasn't produced by Netflix, right? They just picked it up? I'd assume they just picked it up. I, I could only figure that they just picked it up. All right. Well, while you look at that, I will introduce it. It is. Uh, it recently won the Founders Award for Best Narrative Feature at the 2020 Tribeca Film Festival. Uh, it is written and directed by Alice Wu, and it is called The Half of It. Hey, it would suck to have to pretend to be not you your whole life. I gotta go. No, wait. Who you call Choo Choo? What? You know what it's like to finally meet someone your age who gets you? Love, it's not finding your perfect half. It's the trying and reaching and failing. I had to eat since said. No, you don't see her. Who she is? she could be yeah netflix just distributed it ellie chu lives in the small conservative american town of squamish it uh is in the vicinity of sacramento because one of the characters aster goes to sacramento at one point um for the for like the weekend so it's not like super far away it's not like across the country it's Farm to Table by Pivotal Film uh, Standards. Sure. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> it's us going up to Maine to get beers. Um, she lives with her father, uh, who does not have a name. He's just referred to as Ellie's father. He's played by Colin Chow, who I actually think is really, really good. Especially for a guy who's just done a lot of martial arts movies and was uh, in the two Matrix sequels. Um, I thought it was pretty good. Um, they He is the train station engineer or the manager so he's just in charge of kind of 
putting lights up and down and stopping things and doing that. But, uh, you know, he's got a Ph.D. from a, a university in China. To, you know, he came here to be an engineer. Um, she writes papers for kids for money. Uh, one of these kids, Paul Munsky, played by Daniel Deemer, asks Ellie to to write him a letter to the girl that he's in love with. That girl is Aster, the aforementioned Sacramento traveler. Um, which is really just a totality of her character. She travels to Sacramento and that's it. Well, she's a, she's a pastor's daughter. Uh, and she is dating this guy, Trig, who is, you know, uh, his family owns the town, I guess, to an extent. Uh, Trig seems all right. This is one of those weird movies where the guy is like a loser, but he's not like, he's not beating her or anything like that. Which is nice, I suppose. No, he just likes he just likes mudding, and he likes '80s rock music. So Berlin, we, yeah, we Berlin's have, a deep take. We that. have to talk. We have to talk about that a little bit. Um, but the, uh, Paul and Ellie develop a relationship. Um, Ellie, uh, we find out is um, is attracted to Aster, and she is using her relationship to Paul and helping Paul further his relationship to Aster to get close to Aster herself. Um, I won't necessarily go into like the, how the plot mechanics work. We can talk about that as we talk about the film. Um, thoughts, Mario, give me, give me some thoughts. Well, no, I, I, I want to talk, let's talk first about two thoughts here. First thought being the eighties music thought. I want to hear this because these are two sides. Well, my thought on the eighties music thing is that no, my thought about the eighties music thing is related to a lot of the other things that I wanted to say about this movie, which I think this movie has a lot of really th- strong things to recommend for it, but it has this kind of structural problem where it's hues too close to um, all of these traditional tropes of, of this type of narrative. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily know exactly what kind of movie it wants to be. So there's no reason that this movie has to have, or like one of the pivotal plot points of this movie needs to be a talent show. You know what I mean? And there's no reason that, Paul has to, or that Trig has to sing a Berlin song. Why would anyone even know that song? They're all standing up and screaming and singing along. How do they, how does a whole town of people know a song by Berlin? Which is, I, I guess pivots into, I'll bring up my aside point later because it's, it's more of a, a funny point. Uh, but it, it actually feeds really well into my, my overall opinions of this film, which are negative um, in the sense that this film feels wholly I'm I'm very able to suspend belief in a film and accept the the pretenses of what a film's giving um, to a limit. And and this one betrayed everything in that because of the fact that I felt like I was watching a 40 to 50 year old person write a film coming of age film with no other sort of sense of care to create characters who have the sorts of complexities or lack thereof that a 17 year old or whatnot would. The only thing that necessarily it tackles well is kind of like that concept of um, that, you know, Alice Wood con- cackles is that kind of concept of thinking something is one way and kind of realizing ha- as you go down that path, it's not like the entire like concept of what necessarily is love or what necessarily is um 
attraction versus affection versus like lust. And that's at least decently carried over in terms of the age of its protagonist. My driving issue with this film is it, it falls so heavily into those John Hughes tropes of the 80s and never kind of veers away from them until, you know, the film's climax where the, the entire sense of who ends up with who, it, it plays little role in terms of more the sense of like finding out the wholeness is could be found in different things. Um, but my entire problem with this is, is the premise is defied by the fact that None of these characters, um, in terms of their language, acts at all like a 17-year-old would, nor has kind of like the lack of clarity of sense and, and our intellectual capacity that a 17-year-old would. No fucking high school, especially in backwoods conservative, wherever it is. Squahamish. Has, has Satra or, or um, uh, Camus on its, you know, syllabus. Well, I mean, not for like There's, a regular English class, maybe. Maybe is, maybe an AP class. Is, well, having been in AP English classes, still no. But we're making, um, dis- I mean, we're making distinctions that but, we shouldn't have to be making. Yes. But we're also arguing that this is a class that's path failing, for one thing. That's but true. But beyond yeah. that, like these, these are characters, like these are very still conservative characters who have, one, the overall sense of depth of, of knowledge of the different Hepburns um, of somewhat complex, not complex, it, it's still very surface level, but at least the interest in somewhat surface level, um, second, third tier sort of philosophical or artistic intrigue that you just don't see in people in that age ever. Like like there's, 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 there's a betrayal of not necessarily its audience, but a betrayal of its subject matter. And it just kind of just hmm. Ex- hmm. demands that you accept that. And it bugs me. I do think that Paul is kind of the only one who uh, comes close to kind of portraying someone who's maturing in a sense of um, hitting what could be something of the age group. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's, she's very conservative. He's very close-minded. He eventually, he thinks, you know, love is this one thing. He, he develops feelings for Ellie, which are a little more authentic to his character. His feelings are betrayed. He says something that kind of falls back onto his previous sense, conservative sense, like sensibilities, but is really just not a, a mirror of those sensibilities, but more hurting someone who just hurt him. Like when he says like, that's a sin you're going to hell after he finds out Ellie's a Lesbian or bisexual. Well, he's just reaching. Really yeah, he's reaching is. back to the thing that he understands best. Understands, but also is like trying to hurt her in the moment because he's he's hurt himself at her rejection. Um, but even like he has that kind of like weird maturity moment where Ellie's father is talking in Mandarin. He just kind of sits there like he understands. And you're going like, it's a good scene. Yeah, I, it's a good scene, but it it it, it isn't necessarily relatable. And there's a, an entire problem this <sighs> this film. Or there's like this reaching out of its three main characters for this sense of like self that's a little too well. Here's what I would say: a little too deep for the screenplay and a little too deep for the world they've created. Because the world they've created is just a very big artifice to me, and the characters aren't doing anything beyond the kind of common tropes of like a high school 
romance that at all make me want to like tie closer into to the characters or make me believe that their struggles are kind of malleable or palatable. Well, here's what I would say is that the, I think what you're talking about is um, she, he, when you're talking about with, with tropes is that she's really hewing to um, a pre uh, ordained film language for, for, for movies like this. And that could be John Hughes. There's, a lot of ladybird in this movie there's a lot a lot a lot of ladybird here um just in terms of of trying to mix the serious with the slapstick um which they don't ever really they don't necessarily accomplish i'm willing to forgive a lot of i was willing to look the other way on a lot of like aspects of the movie and especially some of like the unbelievable stuff, because we've seen a lot of movies where high school kids don't necessarily talk like high school kids. I think one of the movie's problems is that when I say that it has like some structural problems is that the things that those things are usually not the, um, the fulcrum of the movie, but in this movie, they are the fulcrum of the movie. You know what I mean? Those things that wouldn't necessarily be, high school issues or be relevant to most high school students are the exact thing. Like there's no high school, there's no reason for any high school student to be having that level of conversation about like what love is. And she doesn't really give us a reason for that either. She's just kind of like, you know, there's a million other questions that Ellie should be asking besides what love is. And they don't even really tie her like realization about herself to the idea of, of, of love very well because they seem like two separate things like her learning more about herself and then her her feelings for Aster and whatever they are, whatever they represent um, to the point where so with things like it's almost like there's two different movies. So I didn't I was really on board for a lot of the movie. And then, you know, they start her and Paul started doing reconnaissance on Aster. And I'm just like, I don't need a fucking reconnaissance sequence, man. I don't need a montage of writing on a whiteboard and figuring stuff out. They've already done all that stuff in other movies. And that's the great thing about something like Lady Bird is that like Greta Gerwig kind of created her own visual language to, to tell this story. You know what I mean? And she's not necessarily leaning on anything that anyone else has done before. She's, she's doing her own thing. Um, to that end, though, I really liked the relationship that developed between Paul and Ellie. I thought they were having a really honest... I thought it was like, in terms of the the, the movie, I thought it was a fairly honest representation of two people who don't really... Who come from... I mean, they live across... They live on opposite sides of the tracks, um, which I wasn't sure if that was supposed to be a kind of like symbolic pun. Because I they're on not. the same side of the tracks, but on the opposite side of the tracks? I don't know. Um, I hope not. They, they live on the opposite side of the tracks, but they kind of have the same life. They're both kind of outcasts, and they both don't really communicate well with their family, it doesn't seem like, and they both want different things from life. He wants to make a sausage taco, which apparently is really good, and, and she... Um, wants to write or do whatever or go to Grinnell. Maybe the whole, con maybe that's just go to Grinnell is like the extent of it, but she wants to do this other thing. And I think as they learn about each other, that feels really organic, but then you mix in these like really ham fisted, you know, um, attempts to draw these other emotions out. Like that scene where Trig just shows up at her house. And he's like, I know why you're always around. We, when have we seen Ellie around Trig at the whole movie. No, never. No, you've never seen her <laughs> you've once. You've never seen it. 
so what is he talking about? Um, and then, I mean, the the less said about that, I so that's, I I was I was for, I was forgiving. I just I think Leah Lewis as Ellie does an amazing job here. I think she's really really good. I think she's, um, I think all the things you say are true, but I'm gonna give her a pass, like, I'm, because I think she's a really um, I think she's a really intriguing character. Um, but that ending in that church is is a no. That's 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 a no for me. What is that? What is actually happening there? And why are we still doing this stuff? Where like, you know, it's twenty twenty. I get it. There's maybe it was twenty nineteen when she made this movie. Twenty eighteen. But I'm even if it's pretty conservative America, I'm pretty sure that most towns don't expect like the pastor's daughter to marry the construction baron's son. You know what I mean? To the point where he's gonna interrupt a church service. Apparently, Easter church service. Apparently, everyone in town goes to this church service. That's like something you do in the nineteen, in like a sixties movie. You know what I mean? Like, and that's and then, then Ellie stands up and because she plays the organ, she's a heathen. She doesn't believe in God, but she still plays organ. And she stands up. She's like, "No, you can't marry him." And then Paul stands up and he says some stuff. And actually, what he says is pretty good. Um, and I think relates to what the development of his character pretty well. But then what Ellie says kind of makes no sense that like love is messy. And then she just says love is messy in like four or five different ways for a couple minutes. And then, you know, Astor slaps Paul in the face. All that stuff is bullshit. All that stuff is just trying to be a different kind of movie. Um, and it's a movie that already exists. It's a movie that's already been made like a hundred times. It seems like, um, I don't know. Was this Alice Wu's first film? I don't think it was. Was it? Second movie after uh, Saving Face from 2004. Did you see Saving I, Face? I, I, never, I never saw Saving Face, no. I just, I like, I like her as a writer. I like the actual dialogue. I think a lot of it was clever and um, like had a lot of emotion going on it. And I think it, it had a lot of layers to it. But just the stuff that she stacked on top of that dialogue was a, a progressively... Um, more like teetering pile of of cliches and and been there done that type of stuff. And it's it's interesting. I I, I would agree in the sense that like I do find this re- burgeoning relationship not not necessarily romantic, but like a, like a reconceptualization of a relationship between a man and a woman um, with Ellie and Paul pretty well done. Um, you know, Paul kind of having this this sense of like what a woman should be and like. What his feelings towards a woman should be. Um, eventually, thinking he's having feelings for Ellie, Ellie still having feelings for Aster. Him pursuing Ellie, him rejecting him, and then him coming to accept the one of like her as a friend, and you know, an understanding that like she is who she is. He maybe even misidentified a, a, a friendship love for like like a romantic love. I really think like, and the thing that bugs me beyond like kind of the the sense of, and I, I think this comes to the foreground, the, the kind of cliches and the sort of betrayal of earnestness is this entire featuring Aster as a main component of the film. And I think making her, and I, I think that's where like the weakness of the screenplay comes through is making her such a pivotal component of the forefront betrays the film. I think she needs to play much more of a background role. And I, because she didn't I, give like, her anything to do. Yeah, she doesn't do anything until near the end, and she doesn't need to do anything in this film. And even what she's doing, because we don't. 
need her, need her to be like a third right. growing part. She doesn't, we don't care about Aster. Like, to be honest, I think, and, and even like coming from the film itself, I think, you know, um, Leah Lewis and Daniel Demir, um, and like you said, uh, Colin Chu, all do really solid jobs in this. And the, the chemistry, and I'm not even talking like romantic chemistry, but the pure chemistry uh, back and forth between Lee Lewis and Daniel Demir is really solid mm-hmm. and, and believable. And and there's a real sort of evolution in the characters. And I could almost forgive a lot of the misgivings that I have with the script and, and where it goes and, and the language it produces and the tropes it falls back. But then you get someone who I think is a lot as solid of an actress and Alex Lemur, like who's somebody who's really doing everything on the surface level of what the screenplay is doing. Like she reads the reads it and, and the command she takes from it is kind of just a surface level reaction to what you'd expect from it. And there's, there's not like a real digging into it. And you, you see just like the flaws of the film rise up there with well, that kind of like third character doesn't need to be a component in it. Cause she's not well, she becomes important a, at all. She becomes a plot device. Um, so she serves well, um, she, she should be. She, she should be a, a plot device, personally. But, she, but but she's in the movie so much that she's got to be a character, and and exactly like so they've just stationed her at these moments where there's no reason for her to be there, and there's no reason for her to tickle Ellie in that hot springs. There's no reason for her to even bring Ellie to those hot springs. Why? Because they both they. She talked at Ellie briefly when Ellie dropped all of her stuff, and they like the same. They have the same taste in authors, like so. You just pick up a person at a person's house and then go to their house and then bring them to a hot springs and like strip in front of them and then like tickle them. That's stupid. Like that's just dumb. And so, and then you know, then they need her there so they can she can see him try to kiss her, and it's just like this whole misunderstanding. Um, that obviously it's because it's a movie. It's never going to get worked out until, you know, the last scene. Um, and, and, what's, and what's funny about that too, is like Alex, Alexis Lemur kind of plays that. So the hot spring scenes played. So like, we're just staring at like, you're looking at that scene and the way she's like her facial action in that scene is just like, I know that you're the one writing this. Like she plays it. Like she knows Ellie's the one writing everything well that's what, i kind of went there going i kind of went there going like oh she's gonna know and there's gonna be like this nice turn or whatnot where paul's gonna have like i kind of like was reading through it like oh paul's gonna have feelings for ellie ellie's gonna reject them ellie and you know um i forgot the main object of their perfection's name because isn't that aster, aster are gonna get together and then whatever and it's gonna be a nice evolution for all the characters but then like they, like when they try to make this real big turn and ask her like needing to take her own path i'm just like i could not give less of a fuck about well, because that painting like, scene was she, 50 minutes ago and they never mentioned painting ever again oh i'm i'm out oh you're good you're good okay. you're good yeah you're good it's my new favorite. Well, We're... yeah, it's like the ending. It's like the ending. How like, like the running scene is like also 15 minutes earlier, but like that at least works because you at least created a connection to Paul and Ellie. Like, I don't fucking care about this painting. Like our Astor's painting. Well, well, I don't care in the context that they've, they've given it to us. If they were giving it to us exactly. in a different way, then I might care a lot more about it, but it's just, it, it's just structured. So weird. Like there's, this burgeoning relationship and then there's this relationship that's supposed to be burgeoning that's going nowhere but we're supposed to care about them like on the same level which is also weird because even though Aster's in the movie a lot she's not in the movie in any really meaningful way enough 
that we can make the same connections, that we can have the same feelings. No one cares if Aster and Ellie or Aster and Paul get together. It doesn't matter. Like we, she's established who the main relationship in this is, but she keeps just trying to drag us back into caring about whether or not like someone gets together with Aster. Um, and I think really, I don't even care necessarily if um, Paul or Ellie get together. Like I, I just care about this two characters' evolution because that's our right. focal point. No, that's, I mean get together in the terms of like be friends because yeah, they, it seems okay, like they've established fine. like a genuine friendship. So it would be nice if at the end of the movie. They stayed friends or they had their, their friendship had kind of, it was that relationship that allowed them to blossom into whatever person they were going to be rather than this really false church confession weirdness. Well, yeah. Cause like the, the most earnest scenes of this film are the scenes where like Paul mentions no exit to kind of talk about his own staying in the town yep. and then also talking about not speaking English good. Like when he says, I don't speak English good myself. Like those are really believable earnest scenes you feel together and the scene when they were like, playing ping when they, pong when they were yeah, playing exactly. ping pong and you were t- and that was, i thought that was really really good that was like, really these really are powerful. all really good scenes but then like alice Wu kind of like inserts these scenes to kind of like go back to her pretense of you know talking about the the was it the greeks talking about the two two sides of the self and she has that scene where in the pool like laying face up and they're talking kind of about life and whatnot. And this, this, it's framed in such a way to like where both of their faces are reflected in the water. They're not talking about know... life. They're talking about Chicago. No, they're talking about the band Chicago, Mario. Again. To be fair. Again. What I used to do. When I used to do uh, films, like when I used to make films myself, Chicago actually would play a pretty big role in like three of those movies. I mm-hmm. did. So I actually related to that. I was like, yeah, Chicago. Chicago, of course, you put Chicago in. in your when you're having your most meaningful life experience, or so we're supposed to think, you definitely want to center it around Chicago. I mean, honestly, I, but I could buy that, <laughs> at, least, at, least, at least from personal experience. But like when she shows like the duality of the faces in the water, and you're supposed to like understand, like, oh, it's a central precipice of like, you know, the, the two sides, the halves or whatnot. It's supposed to be a callback to that. And I'm just saying, like, fucking, I want. I don't want to see Aster. Get her fucking out of here. Well, just what like, movie do you I, think you're it's, making? It's like, Who do you think you are? Are you Jean-Luc Godard? I'm like, no, you're not. You're Alice Wu and you're making a high school film. Get that Greek shit out of there. Like, you gotta, you gotta have, like, real relationships. Focus yeah, on the relationships. Stop focusing feature. on the symbolism. It's, you know, that's not necessary. No, you could, like, tell a really kind of forward story and not do all this. And, and, this gets to my my side point I was gonna make, and, and which bugs me, was was I feel there's, I don't know, it just feels like there's a lot of laziness in this screenplay, like there's a lot of laziness in terms of like <sighs> trying to take certain ideas, I try to take certain conceptual, philosophical or whatever ideas, and I don't necessarily want to call them philosophical because like that, everything in here is so surface level, um, and applying them to people who wouldn't say them, and also like throwing everything at so many different walls but there's a scene that bugs me and this is bugging me in a lot of films where if you're gonna put something in a movie fucking do some research so there's a scene where ellie goes to the party and the girl who likes her nails asks her to play drinkers of baton oh come on man no (laughs) this is ridiculous (laughs) this is fucking ridiculous i i would be accepting of something of like oh 
every time you win two sheep, you got to take a shot. I'm okay with like getting rules wrong like that. Mm-hmm. Every time you cross a fairway, take three shots is what they say in the film. There is no fucking fairways in Settlers of Catan or any of the expansions. It makes no sense. Like a 20 second research on the game Settlers of Catan would award you the knowledge that what you're saying doesn't make any sense. I'd be okay if it said like every time you get a sheep, like I said, or every time you win a sheep or every time you win a settlement, I'd be like, you know what? Obviously not the right rules, but I accept this. But it's like, there's a lot of, and, and like, to me, like that kind of puts a lot of stuff in the hole where it's just like, it feels like Alice Wu threw a bunch of shit in here. Like, where can I throw no exit in here? You know, like, how can I kind of like plaster this in here? How can I plaster like, you know, these, these moments of, of interlude, intertidal, intertitles, like to like tie into my scene, which leads to that the kind of funny moment of like Ellie's line and then leading into the emojis. Like that's, that's kind of cute, but still like all these things are like, the Hepburn stuff and when I just feel so blatantly thrown against the wall and then I see that drinker's katan scene I'm like yeah because like I I I feel like it must be because if she couldn't have the care with her screenplay the thing she's been writing to like take a, a second to look up Wikipedia and go like well it's something from the game Settlers of Catan that's in Settlers of Catan okay I write it or or she couldn't like go like what's a game I like or what's a drinking thing I like and put it in there like, how am I supposed to at all? And like, this is the thing I always have a problem with with a lot of writers. Um, like, how am I supposed to believe anything you're putting on the screen if you don't fucking care enough to take a second to like actually do the research or to actually put something that's something you know into the film? And like, like it's funny. It's a funny criticism to have because it feels like, oh, you're being nitpicky. But it, it's like when I've already gone into the first hour of the film having problems with it not feeling close to the chest mm-hmm. which is fine but also feeling really dishonest mm-hmm. with its subject matter like that was a scene where i was like well then yeah she fucking doesn't give a shit well, like she's a, just kind of like doing whatever it's a question of focus though isn't it because i think what you're saying is that she's just trying to kind of she's kind of trying to do everything so instead of picking yeah. instead of picking a focus she's and kind of using that as and then using her her direction and the images, I think I said images, but images to. Kind no, that's, of... that's that's a, that's a that's a new term. That's a pivotal film term now. When um, we write our great movies, you will will be the images. Image image book. Um, instead of using all those like film techniques to establish character, and to establish motive, and then like through that create metaphor and symbolism and things like that, she just like keeps trying to. St- stuff things in there so you end up with um no exit and you end up with remains of the day and you end up with you know oh six different takes on plato and you end up with all this kind of greek subtext and then you end up with these classic films in there you know what i mean there's there's you know wings of the dove reference um um or wings of desire story um so you end up with like just all of these things and what it, they're all in there to tell you one thing about this person. So we don't need to be told the same thing about this person over and over and over and over and over again. Clearly they're not playing regular drinking games. You know what I mean? It's, it's a, it's like a, a nerd party or something. You know what I mean? It's not like a regular person's, 
party, or maybe it is a regular person's party, even though I don't see Aster or Trig there. Um, was Aster or Trig there? I don't remember. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. Um, you know, she's they keep trying to up the credentials of who this person's character is um, for no reason. We already know who she is. We knew who she was from the minute the movie started. So you don't have to keep adding these little touches trying to like separate her it's like yeah we get it she's separated she spends all of her time in a box in a train yard we get it you know what i mean you don't need all this stuff so just pick a pick a, a work of art and work with that you know pick a a, a place to get your quotes from and and work with that work with little flourishes around it fine yeah but like don't like reach everywhere yeah, it just it makes it hard to it, it seems vaguely um I don't want to say dishonest, but you know, chaotic. It seems chaotic. chaotic. Um and, and it seems it feels like you said earlier like a lack of focus. Problematic. Like that's that's why I promise it. And like maybe that's and like that is this concern I have with it like with introducing Astro as like a main third character is it just shows the inherent lack of focus this film has. Mm-hmm. But I think it's when it has a really solid like two thirds part of it going for it. And then like, yeah, this I, third, I got to tell you though, I, we, I don't really want to extend this conversation anymore, but it's one of these things that I'm glad that Netflix exists because there's no way I'm watching this movie under any other like circumstances. And I don't think it's like, oh, it's no. definitely worth a, a, if you're watching everything, it's definitely worth a watch and it's better than 80% of the stuff you're going to find on Netflix maybe. But it's, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna compare it to like there's there's been a whole bunch of of coronavirus Netflix droppings lately, you know, like with Tiger King and whatnot. I compare it to the lack of focus with um, something else I watched like almost all the way through yesterday, um, which was uh, Midnight Gospel, the Pendleton Ward Duncan Trestle cartoon show. Okay, heard about this one? It's the, yeah. They did, did like some of them worked on Adventure Time, um, and I think. Duncan Trussell did Joe Rogan experience, but ended up doing like the Duncan Trussell happy hour. But it's mm. basically like this cartoon where each episode they're kind of like going through and talking with various subjects, like existential, like opinions, but it's over the framework of like kind of Rick and Morty glory S like stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's fucking terrible. <laughs> like just, just awful. Like it lacks, so much focus like the second episode with Anne Lamont um like the feminist comedian and writer um is like told against this backbone of like these deers who eat baby clowns but are turned into meat and it's so disjointed and and lacks focus that it's trying to be uh, subversive um no more transgressive while still like exploring deep sort of like buddhist and transcendental thought and you're just sitting there going like you fucking don't know what you're doing and like you have no reason to exist and i i at the very least would sit there and go like in a world where like that exists and tiger king exists and like outer banks and um i also watched into the dark or whatever or into the light where it's like a russian show that's apparently really popular now where they're like escaping from the dawn because the dawn kills you like in a world where all those films have just come out you yeah. know give this a watch over any of that like this is at least reaching for something like i, I think it, it misses it i, I think it, it falls short of what it's going for i don't think it's has has honest has never really sometimes always was no um 
in terms of like its subject matter. And that's or, not right, it's, I was gonna in say, terms I was, of its subject photos. But, I was going to say like, it's not it's, a subject matter thing either. This um it is a, subject photos. I should say. Yeah, it has. A, it's yeah. Go. The the focus. Uh, at least it's shooting for it, and it's. I don't think she's she's being dishonest. I just don't think she has the, the center eye for it necessarily. There's a lot of promise there because like there is a really solid two thirds of a film here that I think is just weighted down by a really uninteresting, not I don't want to say badly acted, but but very flatly acted third character mm-hmm. that just kind of unravels all the other forgivings I'd have in the film. Yeah, but it's still worth it. It's still worth a watch because. 97% of people disagree with us and the entire Tribeca Film Festival disagrees. Not with us, but at least with me. So, who knows? Maybe I'm being Armand White in this situation. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's possible. Um, yeah. All right, but we sure. will be right back with uh, some list movies, guys. First time in a long time. <laughs> All right, welcome back. Um, I'm gonna go first. My number twenty nine. It's still twenty nine, right? We're not. We're not like gonna not do this episode. We're gonna. We're gonna keep going ahead with it. Uh, yeah, I think so. Is uh, two thousand seven, which is a big year for us, um, in uh, in a lot of different ways. Actually, it's an interesting. It's an interesting thing to think about the ways that two thousand seven was a, a huge year for us, but for vastly different movies. This um, season, this season was a big year just because I was uh, entering my senior year of college. Like life was about ready to unravel. Yeah, I was. That's what happened in your senior year of college. Well, no, the the financial market was about ready to. Oh yeah, I wasn't paying any attention to that at the time. So, um, you're about ready to get married. A year later, I got married. Yeah. Hmm. Um. So it is Sean Penn, which feels weird to have a Sean Penn movie on my list. Uh directed uh into the wild son how long have you been out here a couple of weeks and before that i went to south dakota i worked for this guy named wayne what do you think about all this i like all this i took the colorado river all the way down to the grand canyon and did rapids what's the end stand for north your great alaskan adventure Into the Wild was written or adapted and, and directed by Sean Penn, as I mentioned before. It is based off of the uh, John Krakauer book called Into the Wild, which was written about uh, Chris McCandless, who was a college, recently graduated college student who in the early 90s, he just decided to throw his, his old life away and go uh, walking across America or uh, canoeing across America or hitchhiking across America. He ended up in the Alaskan wilderness in uh, 1992, and he found a bus um, that all hunters had been using um, as just kind of like a place to stay when they were out in the wilderness hunting. Um, and he 
as far as this film is concerned and as far as crack hour is concerned he ate some poisonous potato roots and he died out there and then some hunters found him several weeks later um this is a very uh i think where uh, crack hour tries in his book to place McCandless in a in a kind of context at least a little bit there's a little there's a lot of romanticism in the story as well um especially with some of the other people that he talks about like other other people that have tried to do this kind of thing um Sean Penn has taken all the romanticism out of the book and injected just you know inhuman amounts of of steroids into this to make this like a super romantic film about the life of of Christopher J McCandless aka Alexander Supertrip to the point where you know you know he's looking at horses and he just bursts into tears you know what i mean there's like there's lots of shots of him just like standing in front of water and just looking at it in slow motion there's just tons of that stuff you know what i mean he's just running with running with horses with why he'd find some wild horses and he runs with them um that type of stuff um the movie emil hirsch plays mccandless uh his parents are played by marcia gay harden and william hurt jenna malone plays his sister um there's a whole host of people that he meets on his travels uh including um uh catherine keener and uh brian durker who play these two hippies that he kind of latches on to he meets this old man named hal holbrook I mean, named Hal Holbrook. Yeah, he meets Hal Holbrook playing himself. <laughs> he meets uh, this old guy named Ron Franz, played by Hal Holbrook, who got nominated for an Oscar. This got nominated for two Oscars for editing and uh, Best Supporting Actor for Hal Holbrook. Um, Kristen Stewart is one of those other kind of – is the child of hippies that he meets at this this uh, commune-type type place, uh, the, the Slabs. Um, Slab City, I guess it is. Um, one of the places where the where – Catherine Keener and Brian Durker kind of end up. Uh, and then in South Dakota, he, he hangs out with Vince Vaughn, who owns like a, a grain, um, you know, manuf- harvesting facility. And Zach Galifianakis is one of his employees and teaches him about, you know, smoking meat. Because when you need to know how to smoke meat, you got to ask Zach Galifianakis. Um, so... We're at number twenty nine. I don't really know where I want to start. I don't think I want to start negative. No, because with- I think if we start negative and we're just going to stay negative, it's going to be hard for me to get into the other things. Although I just I find it more I find it like really really interesting. I think one of the things that I feel about this book is I've always been really attached to the ideas in this in this not just this book but in this movie. And I saw the movie before I saw I read the book. Um, because I, 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 to a certain point, I didn't, I couldn't articulate the feelings that I think that this thing brought up in me, and which was weird because like right after this, I got married and all this other things, but I really kind of pictured myself as <clears throat> one of these guys that could do this, or that wanted to do this, uh, we could just kind of like, just, you know, shuff off whatever you know life you had built for yourself and just go live in the woods somewhere. Um, ironically i've subsequently found through experience that like i don't really like want to live that life at all anymore and it took a lot of years but i definitely i held on very close to some like a lot of the ideals that are brought up in this movie um i saw this movie a bunch of times i saw a lot of the movies that came out in 2007 a few times in the theaters um mostly alone um 
again because of the greatest art house cinema ever um in orange connecticut which doesn't exist anymore which <laughs> was a huge oh, orange orange connecticut exists. orange connecticut doesn't exist anymore a uh, huge multiplex that showed because no one went there to do anything it showed independent uh it showed lots of independent movies which was the best we'll talk about it for next week's movie too um but there is there's a weird starting positive there's a a really excellent sense of freedom to this movie and i think um a lot of that has to do with uh the editing by jake hassidy um it seems like edited really kind of perfectly uh, a lot of great shots there's a lot of, he it's it's a very impressionistic film uh, clearly sean penn just told emil hirsch to kind of just go do stuff in certain places and then they filmed it and they just tried to they kind of pieced it together and i think they did a really successful job personally um clearly they did a successful job of establishing a real sense of freedom of what it would mean to kind of of what it would feel like if you were young and romantic and thought that this was a really excellent way to live your life um the other thing that this movie has going for it is uh, a whole album of original songs by Eddie Vedder, which in 2007 was like the biggest deal in the whole world to Tom Nolan. Um, a, a, so, a solo Eddie Vedder record uh, for a for a Sean Penn movie uh, starring Emil Hirsch, who at the time I really liked. Uh, before I saw this movie, I really liked him. Um, was was like almost too good to be true news. You know what I mean? Um, and it's still one of those albums that I kind of go to when I want like a certain aesthetic. I think that's again to to go back to kind of like the editing and how this movie is put together. It, like it, it uh, establishes an aesthetic and it kind of stays there. And it's and it's rough and it's very loose and it's it's not like overly controlled. Um, it's not tight. You know what I mean? Um, it's kind of has an organic feel to it. And I'm going for feeling, feeling, feeling with uh, talking about this movie. Um, this is a movie that sat like in the forefront of my brain. This is an idea that sat in the forefront of my brain for a long time. I remember in my first year of um, when I went back to school, when I was 32, I wrote an essay about a really long essay that I didn't have to write about this. Uh, like another one of these guys, this kid named Everett Roos, who is in the Krakauer book uh, Into the Wild. He's another one. He's just went into the desert. He just like walked around the desert for just years, like with a donkey, and and eventually he just disappeared into the desert. And no one knows where he is, and there's still people that you know go look for him in the same way that there's people that like are obsessed with Chris McCandless and going to the bus and retracing his steps and doing all that stuff. Um, Hanging out with D. W. Cooper. Yeah, I was. They're just like a. There, I was. I wasn't like obsessed with him, but I definitely I bought that guy's journals you know what i mean they've published a lot of his journals he's got a couple published biographies i read both of those you know what i mean i wrote extensively about um about him in the essay and i was just it's like one of those things where i couldn't i just always thought that i could do it and that i would like it and it would like that kind of solitude that kind of freedom would be like a really meaningful experience um i don't know if we've we've talked about this but I, we definitely haven't talked about it in the air i think and then a couple of years ago for father's day i got like my family got me this they rented a cabin for me in the woods like in a, in a i got a state park um but it was like no just just electricity no bathroom it was just by myself it was next to a river 
um, and I was just going to be alone for like three days and I was going to write stuff and I brought some uh, Brooklyn summer um, with me and like a bunch of clementines and some beef jerky and some nuts and I brought infinite jest and a, and a collection of HP Lovecraft stories and I was just going to, I was going to hike and I was going to read and I was going to eat, <laughs> eat clementines. HP Lovecraft, that yeah, I was just, I was really into HP Lovecraft in what, for at the time. Yeah, um, and I was like in the middle of a story, and I was like, oh, I want to finish the story. So I wrote a bunch of stuff, and uh, I didn't do any of that. I hiked one day, and I, I I thought I saw like a big animal. I was pretty sure I saw a big animal like moving below me. And I just hiked till I died, and then after I hiked till I died, I was like, yeah, there's nothing to do here when you're alone. Like, and I could read. And I didn't want to. I didn't want to write, and I didn't really want to read and I was out of food and I was like, this sucks being out of food and this sucks being alone. I just like want my family here and I want to like talk to somebody. And so I went to like, I found a grocery store and they had DVDs and I bought a DVD of JFK and I just like sat alone in my cabin and like ate a sandwich that I got from the grocery store and watched JFK. And I was like, I can't wait to go home. This will be the best. That was, but that took me like eight, it took me 10 years almost to get over like, the sensation that like this was like a super amazing way to live your life. But I think that feeling in my mind was that this movie established was like very important. It kind of established like a sense of um, like inner freedom, which I think I, I definitely think I took with me through most of my um, or I referred to through most of like my, my college you know, going back to school and being like this kind of like outsider and, um, just kind of doing what I needed to do and not focusing on, on all the little bullshit, um, that comes with like anything and just focusing on, on like the task at hand. And, um, I think it helped establish, and I don't know if this makes me sound like a loser, but it definitely helped establish like a kind of a certain mentality that I like still carry with me of like, in terms of like, I mean, I have a bunch of stuff, but I also don't have very much stuff. You know what I mean? Like I don't, I don't need a lot of stuff necessarily. I like having books. I don't, but I don't necessarily need. I don't know. It's hard, it's kind of hard to explain, especially because I'm like sitting in like my, my kids' room and I'm like surrounded by all this other this stuff that we've gotten and what have you. Um, but I think was one of the things. Was, I mean, your kids might need stuff. Right. <laughs> Maybe not you. I don't necessarily know if they need this Pokemon Z Ring, Mario. Do they need? I don't this know what book? that is. That confuses me and scares me. <laughs> Um, it doesn't matter. Um, it's 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 I I this movie and some of the ideas that are that are portrayed in this movie caused me like great conflict, but also caused me still to think about my life in a really meaningful way. Um, and it's a, something that doesn't come without doesn't come without this movie. And like something that's really important to me. Um, to that end, though, Mario, that's why it's pivotal. That's why it's twenty nine. Um, this is where we start kind of getting into the uh, frames Tom's existence m- movies. You know what I mean? Like slowly, 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 and 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 soon the movies will matter. I was because I was writing. I'm writing another paper about um, high fidelity, the book high fidelity. But I'm going to talk about the movie. And like the f- first thing I wrote in my notes was that influence and preference are like married to me. Like I don't have. All of my preferences are like related directly to like a lot of a lot of uh, are directly related to how much they have influenced me. And this is Into the Wild is kind of 
one of those things where um, I like it as a movie because it's it holds a lot of influence. Um, I also it's still a movie, and I still watch movies critically, and I can't stop myself watching movies critically, especially now that I've kind of gotten over some of my attachment to this movie. Like, um, you know, it's still important and I'm still attached to it, but I don't like I'm not blinded by it anymore. You know what I mean? Um, I don't love this movie. I I it, it I think it feels awesome um, when it's not doing things that I hate. What are those things, Mario? I'm sure you have a long list of these things too. Oh no, go ahead. How many keep, keep narrow? Going. How keep many, going. Keep going. Keep going. How many voiceovers oh, my... does a movie need, Mario? How many? No, oh. not voiceovers. How many people need to have direct communication with the audience in a movie? I don't know. But it's not as many as they have in this movie and not as used as haphazardly as they are in this movie. How much yellow outlined in black writing on a screen do you think a movie should have? Like, Is it is it an Alan Moore adaptation? <laughs> well, that's I suppose that that's a question, because if it is an Alan Moore adaptation, I feel like I, I would want some because I bet that would be really interesting. That would be really interesting writing. Um but there's a lot of that here, Mario. There's a lot of that here. If I'm making a movie about some guy who's supposed to be super earnest, you know what I mean? He's really serious and he cares a lot about what he's doing and he's thrown his whole life away based on this idea. Am I going to portray him a lot of times just acting like a total fucking goofball? You know what I mean? Like talking to himself in the bus and like, playing with his gun which is not like a metaphor for anything he's literally goofing around with a gun in his hand um i don't think i'm gonna do that you know what i mean i to the ex, ex to the expense of or at the expense of having emile hirsch say less things um it's just he's just really really corny i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of things in this movie that are just you know if you're making a movie there's a lot of these things that i don't approve of as movie techniques and i don't i think a lot of the ways that this movie is really free and feels really free has nothing to do with these directorial choices that like sean penn has made or these directorial um like the ways that he kind of breaks in i i mean even when i saw it i almost died but now when i see it i makes me like completely fucking angry when Emil Hirsch breaks the fourth wall when he's eating that that apple and he's talking to the apple he's like you're a delicious apple you're the apple in my eye and then he like pokes his face to the camera I that's it I mean that's that's a no-go what are we doing here what kind of movie is this looking at the camera like it's, it's you know what, what are you trying is he just playing like is that what, what's happening he's just like he actually is just goofing around um that stuff is weird that stuff is really, really weird. You know what I mean? And I, I know you agree with me on like a lot of this stuff because I know how you feel about this movie. And if, I'm sure you have like a bunch more things. I think the other, the main issue I have with this movie is like I don't love Emil Hirsch in this movie. I just don't think he's very good. Like I kind of remember Project Greenlight. Did Jeez. you? The Matt H- Damon, the, Ben Affleck. Thing? Yeah. yeah. Remember the movie they were gonna make? Did you watch Project Greenlight? Not 
frequently. Okay, so I watched. I remember I watched. I think I watched the first two seasons, and in one of the seasons, they really wanted to cast Emile Hirsch as like the lead. I think it was the one that Shia LaBeouf ended up being in. But oh, like, uh, Battle of Shaker Heights. Battle of Shaker Heights. Yeah, they wanted to cast Emile Hirsch in it, but Emile Hirsch like would not audition. Where the fuck did I pop out? That how did I? Why is that in my memory? I don't know. By the way, Jesus. But uh, Emil Hirsch would like refuse to audition for this movie, and they're just like the directors, you know, who are not real directors. They're just guys that like wrote this movie and like won this contest and are going to make this HBO show. They just they wanted him. He like refused to read for them because he had like just made the Dangerous Lives of Alter Boys and was like a super it guy, and he was like, I don't read for this stuff, and I was like. Yeah, Emil Hirsch doesn't have to read for stuff. The Dangerous Lives of Alter Boys is amazing, um, which is a movie that was would show up much later on my list if we actually did this. Um, I really liked him. Um, I just think he's bad in this. I just think he's trying too hard. I mean, I think a scene like that society scene that he has with Vince Vaughn, who is also ter- who is also terrible. But, like, he's not the main character. We don't need him to be anything but, like, what he's being. That can't happen. They can't scream society at each other for a minute. Because it makes no sense. Like, I guess he's supposed to be living free, but this is living free? Living free means you get to just scream at Vince Vaughn for a minute? That's not cool. That's just, I don't know. And it's there's a weird superiority thing. Like, I actually think he gets better when he feels superior to the to the person he's playing off of so i think when he's interacting with jan and rainy so that would be katherine keener and, and brian durker i think he's really really bad because i think he's trying to convince them that he like is one of them but then when he's hanging out with ron Franz, he's you know i actually think he's pretty good because he's like lording over ron Franz how free he is you know what i mean i think the same thing is true when he's acting with Kristen Stewart and I think those Kristen Stewart sections are amazing but I think he's good because he thinks he's better than Kristen Stewart's character um or that saying scenes where Emil Hirsch acts like a pretentious asshole he's pretty good in that's history has shown Emil Hirsch might be a bit of a pretentious asshole yeah um but maybe not so much acting during those scenes so it's weird it's I think and I think that adds a little bit to the mystique of the movie for me is that he's like I just have such conflicting feel conflicted feelings about it now, so I carry, I carry certain like emotional memories with me. While knowing that like the actual thing is really not as meaningful as it as it as it used to be, and this is a pretty well received movie. Like it was on a lot of top ten lists. It got nominated for a lot of stuff. Um, you know, it won a it won a Golden Globe. Eddie Vedder won a Golden Globe for best original song. I was is sad. Guar- at, is that for guaranteed? Yeah, I was sad at the time he didn't get nominated for an Oscar. I was I assumed he would, um, but nothing went as I wanted it to in two thousand seven, uh, except for Daniel Day Lewis. So, you know, not even cinematography. Hmm. Not even cinematography. No. Although it did win a cinematography award, but not an Oscar. No, no. no I bet like nothing went the way you wanted to in 2007. I would have assumed you wanted Robert Ellswit to win in 2007. Oh, I didn't care about cinematography in 2007. Oh. I was sad for Johnny Greenwood. I spent a lot of time being sad for Johnny Greenwood in 2007. And you wanted Anderson to win director, I assume. Well, yeah, of course. 
Come on. We're happy with um supporting actress, and I can't remember her name right now, and I don't know why I can't remember her name. Oh, what the hell? Why am I forgetting her right now? Nobody could be angry about Michael Clayton. Why am I forgetting her name? Oh, Tilda Swinton? Yeah. yeah I mean, she, I think she, I'm glad she has an Academy Award, but I don't, I mean, I thought she was okay in Michael Clayton. Oh, she was, of the supporting actresses that year, though, she was. Well, yeah, whatever. Nominee, she was the best. Okay, we can move on. Yeah. We don't have to talk about 2007 Academy Awards today. Um, yeah. No. But yeah, that's Into the Wild, Mario. I hope everyone's happy to have the list, the list back. Yeah. So into the wild is interesting because it's for me, an anti list movie. <laughs> is that a thing that could exist? I don't know you have to explain movie? what that would mean. What was an anti list? Um, so a film that is abjectly everything I didn't want to experience in a movie in the moment of which I experienced it. And, to be and, fair, though, know, when I was watching this, I, to it. even in this moment, I know this is all the things I just described are like Mario no-nos. So if a movie is doing any of those things, you're just like, no, nah, I'm not doing that anymore. So it's got yeah. four well, different. It's got four narrators, Mario, at least. I know there might even be more. Four different <laughs> um, people are doing voiceovers. You are not having which that. Is, it's fine. It, that's like that's fine. My. my Focal problems with this movie don't stem from it necessarily has the film that's that's made. Um, so as we said before, 2005 to 2007 was the era of which I did start caring about things like cinematography, editing, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Like th- those are the years where you know, early 2000s played a role. But 2006, 2007 were the moments where I s- would see everything in theaters for the pure reason of seeing film critically. Yep. Um, the two weeks in which I saw Into the Wild were, by definition, the absolute worst times in which one should see the film Into the Wild, um, both from a subject matter perspective and also from a presentation perspective. Uh, let's, go with, let's go with presentation. Overall, I think it's a fairly average film. Um, it, it reminds me a lot of what a lot of filmmakers were trying to do in terms of art cinema in the mid 2000s which is this weird recollection of new hollywood um mixed yeah. with sort of modern sensibilities sure so for some reason in sean penn was attempting to do a jordan winsky sort of um film in into the wild a lot of times like there's this kind of like weird metaphysicalness with Into the Wild, which I never necessarily got from the storyline. Um, mixed with Jodorowsky, kind of this, like, like, the hot, like the Holy Mountain? Like, like Holy Mountain, yeah. But not, not as much as the abstraction, but in terms of like the ground levelness with like the subconscious of its, of its main um, focus. Uh, I think he did try like, to... Just, kind yeah, of like yeah. pure Fonda sort of sensibility. Well, I think he's trying, but, yeah, he's trying to establish a cultural consciousness rather than just like saying this is this one kid saying that like he belongs somehow to all of us oh no absolutely that's absolutely what he's trying to do but he does it underneath the pistache the pistache sorry the pistachio the pistachio pistachio. the uh kind of um distance and, and frailty of what ang lee 
was doing with Ice Storm and of what I still stand by being one of the worst films of its time, Brokeback Mountain, um, in the sense of there's so much distance with such a personal subject. Like there's so many moments that are just kind of like long distance shots or long establishing shots are kind of like these breath, like these breathing shots in between moments of like closeness with your characters in order to kind of like create a scope. And it's a, it's a, it's a tenement of mid 2000 cinema. Which kind of like existed overall. Yeah. But sorry. No, no. I just want to because oh, it's like I raised your hand. Well, how yeah, else are we gonna Tom? do this? I could just either be like Mario, stop talking. Mario, stop talking. Mario, stop talking. You see what I do? Just interject. <laughs> um, I think one of the problems with that is it's not just going from qu- like shots of quiet breathing or like looking at stuff. It's that he goes from looking at stuff to like weird contextless action. Exactly. And so no, absolutely. It, it's it, it is it is a jarring kind of experience. I'm assuming he means to represent a kind of existential freedom, but which isn't. So I think when he's looking at stuff, I sense that's that's what freedom looks like or feels like. But when he's doing other all of his Emil Hirschisms all over when he's Emil Hershing all over this movie, that doesn't seem like freedom to me. That sounds like just a guy being a douchebag. Well, see, I I don't I don't see context there. I see um, I I see Brokeback Mountain in that. I see uh, uh, traffic in that. I see these shots from like Brokeback Mountain where there's a, a several lines of dialogue between Ledger and Gyllenhaal with that I will that score. I won't. I won't. I won't denigrate that score because of your your love of that score. It's a great score. Um, uh, you know, between them, you know, shepherding kind of like the cows and whatnot, then back to a long shot, several cuts to establishing a long shot, back to them shepherding, back to the actual meat of the film. And this that does this a lot. And that was something that I think started out heavily, it started out slightly with um, traffic. Soderbergh traffic in 99 really fucking ramps up in 05 uh, with Babel and broke back mountain oh, and just and just kind of continues throughout and into the wild does a lot of that and it's just something that is is a, is is a really prominent feature and even films i absolutely adore that we'll talk about such as no country for old men uh have these failings where they kind of need to kind of linger on these long establishing shots in order to kind of like give this representation of scope um the difference between you know, something like There Will Be Blood, No Country for Old Men, Going Back to the Fountain. Like, those shots are there. The hallmarks of, of beauty, and they kind of, like, come back into focus. The problem, like, Into the Wild is it's kind of, like, with Brokeback Mountain, like, a, a very striking representation of allowing your film to breathe far much, far longer than it needs to. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like I've said, I don't know if I ever said this on the podcast, I walked out of Brokeback Mountain for 20 minutes because I was so bored out of my goddamn mind. I, I literally looked there and I said, the next time I see an establishing shot in this movie that lasts longer than three cuts, I'm leaving. Yeah. And I left just to walk around for 15 minutes to look at fucking posters because I was angry. And and it was just like, like Into the Wild represented that. But the reason I call this an anti-pivotal film is 
Into the Wild came out within a two-week span of me seeing a total of four films, Into the Wild being one of them. Um, and the other two being films, two of the three other films being ones we are going to mention still. Um, uh, a week before I had seen this, um, I had seen No Country for Old Men for the first time. Had not slept for 24, like 18 hours before I saw No Country for Old Men. Had, you know, been utterly enamored. And we'll, we'll talk about the Cormac McCarthy thing and everything in the next few minutes when I get into my film. Um, been utterly enamored with with Cormac McCarthy's No Country for Old Men and The Road and whatnot. Uh, was, no, it wasn't The Road. It, um, sorry, Bloodbirdy and, and Sutra. And so, like, I couldn't sleep the night before I saw No Country for Old Men. And I was so, I knew I was going to be disappointed going to No Country for Old Men. I saw it and it, 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 it still like blew me. It still like uh, exceeded my exceptionally high expectations. Um, the night before I saw Into the Wild, I had traveled to Sacramento, Connecticut. Uh, Sacramento, Connecticut. Sacramento, California. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, to see a special screening of Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which is a film we'll still talk about. Um, and immediately, like it was, Diving Bell and the Butterfly wasn't actually fully released in America until 2008, but there was like a screening, like a special early screening for some reason. Um, I don't know what the reason was uh, of Diving Bell. Uh, An earlier playing in the same theater was The Savages. Uh, Tamara Jenkins, The Savages. And so back to back, I saw The Savages followed by Diving Down the Butterfly. Two films that deal very distinctly with death. We'll talk about both of those films in several weeks. Yep. Next day at the Grand Sierra Hotel, uh, a very large casino in Reno, I saw Into the Wild. Um, and the entire premise of the film, dealing with this kid out of place presented with this kind of smug indifference to the <laughs> world around him by Emile Hirsch presented you know in, in this kind of like hands-off artistic way um with this kind of like ultra to uh like lost Hollywood pretense by Sean Penn uh and I watched this movie and I sat there and went you fucking piece of shit for two hours and 20 minutes, I glared at that screen because I had, you know, no country for old men to be represented like the desolation of, of the new world. Des you know, we'll talk about that. Um, Diving on the butterfly and savages represented like this life lost, but like still clinging on to everything you can and seeing into the wild immediately preceding all that was like the smug, little asshole out of college kid and you now I'm, I'm here just turned 21 myself going like what the fuck you doing and i'm like give me a reason why i should want to root for you give me a reason why i shouldn't be and i'm not okay i don't want to say this but give me a reason why i should care about you dying at 24 because of your own choices like sean penn convince me why i shouldn't be like convince me why i should care about this kid's story yeah, yeah. and like 
and, and, and you know, maybe it's not a fair thing to say because I'd come into it being like, I had just watched a film where, um, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman and, and Laura Linney deal with the death uh, of their father uh, from Alzheimer's. Sure, sure, sure. And, and, you know, um, I had seen a film where a man, oh God, why am I forgetting the director's name right now? Diving Melbourne Butterfly. Julian Schnabel? Yeah, Julian Schnabel just so beautifully presented a man's like, grasping onto life and the beauty of life yep. through just being still like, you know, and, and, and that those two films so representing like the community and togetherness and the very next day seeing this movie about somebody who's like wants to have some sort of slight individual, like extreme individuality and, and, and a denial of kind of community. And like, ultimately that's what into the wilds like tries to come back and say like, Oh, he was seeking that out. Um, but I was like, convince me of why I'm going to root for this guy to like come to that answer. Yeah. And when Sean Penn kind of bungled that, um, in the set, and, and 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 I'm not saying he, he he totally misfired. It's it's a it's a fine movie. Like like looking at it through a critical eye for the mid 2000s, it's it's better than Little Miss Sunshine, but it's it's ultimately for me pretty forgettable. It's mm-hmm. it's a ultimately like pretty okay movie it's an okay movie it's a really good hal holbrook performance i, yeah. I forgot how much how good hal holbrook is in that um and and Kristen stewart um but watching that movie when i did in that theater i sat there going like you fucking piece of, like how dare you like it, it's it's incredible to me how much i sat there and went like fuck you like yeah i like, this movie elicited that it was the most angry I've ever been at a film after seeing what I had seen since Schindler's List. And the reason Schindler's List made me angry was for the intention of Spielberg with, you know, the, the girl in the red coat on the pile of bodies. But like, that was the most angry I'd been at a film. And that's why like, to, it's interesting. This movie's interesting to me because it's, it's ultimately a perfectly fine movie, a perfectly fine kind of like adaptation of a biopic. But it, it sort of represents to me how the frame of mind in which you see a movie can severely color your yeah. opinion of a film. For the past 17, 13 years, I've looked at this movie like this is one of the worst films of the 21st century <laughs> because it just so happened to be watched in context with like No Country for Old Men being kind of like this kind of like film I always expect, but more contextually, immediately watching immediately after diving on the butterfly and savages films that thematically deal with similar sort of sense of being you know you watch those two in the same 48 hour 36 hour period and and it just like into the wild never stood a chance well just i mean those are interesting movies because when you talk we were talking about you know honestly a little bit or authenticity which i don't think was a word that came up but i think what we could have said in terms of um the half of it those movies, or at least Diving Bell and the Butterfly and Savages, are just more authentic than Into the Wild. And I love, I mean, I, I'm attached to my death to Into the, like some of the themes in Into the Wild. But I think one of the things was that I never even thought for a second about, I didn't have to root for McCandless because I just kept picturing myself in his context. And I think one of the problems I've always had too is that like, I've never pictured myself being in, like, on that bus, having no food, 
like having to make a choice whether to eat this root or not eat this root. It was all about idealism and um, like self-definition and then pulling out of that, like extrapolating from that some kind of larger existential meaning. It wasn't about the, it wasn't about the specific pieces, but it was about like a larger whole and what that stuff could represent. And I think that's one of the problems with that I have with the people that are like doing like the follow-up documentaries and are now like finding, you know, there's a, there, I guess there was a documentary that filmed at the exact same time that Sean Penn was making this movie. And, uh, they like cross paths a lot of times he and like the, in the film, um, and, you know, he's, he's decided, this guy that made this has decided that he didn't die from reading that route, he died from this other thing, and he didn't do this, and he did this other thing. Those things don't mean anything. So to that end, I didn't have to, like, watch it as a movie until I'd kind of gotten over all that stuff. And I've kind of, you know, I'd kind of made my peace with what I thought, like, my life could be or should be or... Um, or in, I until I had fully integrated all of those ideas into, like my vision of of like myself and now i watch it and i kind of feel the same way you do where this is just kind of um like an indie movie experiment or like a you know a, a huge art film that's just kind of let itself get too arty um where those other movies like they have a lot more control over it. and i don't think i doubt very much whether sean penn would like us to compare him to julian schnabel i think he'd probably agree with us wholeheartedly um but like Julian Schnabel is a hundred times the filmmaker Sean Penn is, and Tamara Jenkins is as well. You know what I mean? They're uh, eliciting a control over their films that that Sean Penn just doesn't have. But I don't or think he's trying to have it either. Care to do yeah. right, and so they're making they're making two different they're making totally different movies. But those movies through film get at something very specific, where I think he is using film to suggest certain things and that's what no, that's no and, and that's i agree really I, I i think he doesn't care so much i don't think he cares so much it just was interesting that it just for me it, it was interesting that in retrospect like how in happenstance those films have sort of crossed well, it's it's weird to though, the to, detriment of, yeah. of Into the Wild. It's weird that you mentioned those films that you did in terms of Traffic in Babel and uh, Brokeback Mountain and stuff like that, because those are three directors that really care a lot. But they all made movies where it seemed like, you know, to the same effect as Into the Wild, where they just were kind of like, well, I'll just shoot this and then I'll edit it and then it'll be good. I had I was lucky that I had the soundtrack to cling to in Brokeback Mountain. Brokeback Mountain didn't like have a, like a big effect on me. I definitely don't think Crash should have won an Oscar. Um but I'm not like one of those people that thinks that like I think Brokeback Mountain was robbed in the same way that I think Get Out was robbed or like Black Panther was robbed is that the Oscars had an opportunity to make a cultural statement and they just decided to do the other thing. Um but I think it's they made a cultural statement with Crash, excuse me. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm sure they believe that with the artist also. Um, but, but, but yeah, so it's, uh, that's into the wild. You got anything else you want to say? All right. Yeah. So I did my 29 Mario. We're halfway there. We're halfway to being all the way back. Uh, so we will be right back with Mario's 29.
As we transition from the 30s to the 20s for my films, the ideas of masculinity and sex, identity, and death become uh, kind of more prevalent. And these are kind of like topics that underscore a lot of my interest in art, which I don't know necessarily what that says about me, but I'm just going year by year, pushing off the question and thinking that's a good thing. Okay. Right? It's fine. Um, but as we are in the twenties, we, we get more into like my personal definition um, of the, the convalescence between masculinity, identity and, and position in life. Um, I guess I guess we kind of start out with with kind of like a forebearer or, or not necessarily a forebearer, a, a kind of like keystone to all of that. Two list films ago, um, no, sorry, three list films ago, which I believe was in October of 1979 when we released that episode. <laughs> Um, I mentioned one of the great anti-war films, in my opinion, of Dr. Strangelove uh, by Stanley Kubrick. And about how it, given its position in the time in which I watched it, um, immediately following the shock and awe of 2003, I want to say off the top of my head, uh, it sort of helped shape a lot of the ideas of what I would carry forth in what, it, what I saw in art, especially what it dealt with in terms of war and, and, and the prevalence of war. As I would enter college, those ideas of the, your cat's hungry again, huh? <laughs> it is, yeah, it's just 1041. It's, he just wants to eat at 1041. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, it's, just, it's funny. Um, Stupid cat. Those, those ideas of the junction um, between masculinity, violence, um, oppression, uh, and identity would kind of play a really big role in, in establishing what I saw as pivotal in, in, in the films uh, that, would, that would guide me through college. We talked about that uh, last list episode with Closer. Um, that quadrilogy of films about love and my understanding of love. Um, around this time, I believe I first saw this film around 2005 with its sister film from the same director. Uh, I would encounter something that was a film I, I sought out mostly because it was considered ultra violent for its time. Um, you know, graphically, obscene, seemingly violent, often uh, upon its initial release, reviled for its depiction of violence. Um, but as I would watch it, and as I'd watch, you know, its, its sister film, which we'll talk about in two list episodes, whenever that may be, um, I would come to have a deeper understanding with it and a deeper kind of relationship with it due to its nature in opposition to to the violence. Um, 
I think it was, I, I try to remember, I think it was Orson Welles who, who called this director, uh, the director of like his second favorite anti-war film uh, next to, I think it was All Quiet on the Western Front. Mm-hmm. Um, just for its kind of underscored condemnation of its violence, even though it's with its presentation of violence. And um, as I watched this particular film, being a, a lover of, of Westerns, just for my dad, um, and just from growing up where I grew up and, you know, the, the media surrounded by, I, even though this film just, just had such an obscenely close guttural sense and visceral sense of its violence, I understood sort of the nature of questioning not only violence, but also question the nature of, of the preconceived notions of masculinity um, for its time. Um, and that's why my number 29 is Sam Peckinpah's 1969 Western, The Wild Bunch. Frank had been a gentleman of principle. He still had a principle or two. We're not getting rid of anybody. We're going to stick together just like it used to be. When you side with a man, you stay with him. And if you can't do that, you're like some animal. You're finished. Dutch had dug for gold. He gave up digging. How many cases did you take from the train? 16 cases of rifles. We lost one on the trail. He stole it. Look at people. Thornton should have been a lawyer. He always argued. Oh! Relax, it's just some champagne we ordered. Sykes had been a gunman in his day. He still had the gun. We, we, we gotta get him back! How? Gorch had been trying for years. Sometimes he almost worked up to normal. I want you to meet my fiance. <laughs> In early 20th century uh, Texas, Pike and his uh, gang of outlaws, including Ernest Borgnine, fresh off the Dirty Dozen, um, are about ready to do one big final score against a railroad office um, holding a large cache of silver in a t- town they are quietly right up holding to hoping to have a uh, um sort of quiet last hurrah little did they know that laying in wait is a gang of bounty hunters led by a railroad baron um and pike's former partner deke thornton who has been imprisoned in yuma for years um and has now been sequestered to bring pike and his gang to justice in order to avoid prison. Uh, a bloody shootout incurs where a bunch of innocent citizens are murdered um, doing their little temperance dance. Uh, and Pike and three of his compatriots run off um, into the day, uh, the rest being killed. Eventually they discover that the score was for naught. They were obviously- prepared. A dollar worth of steel holes. holes. Yeah. There's only washers and no silver coins. And so they are 
you know, Pike with Dutch, uh, sorry, there's five of them, Dutch, the Gorch brothers and angels, and angels, and angel are the only ones who survive and they, uh, they're left to go across the Mexican border and kind of plan um, hopefully another heist to uh, close out their, their days. Um, eventually they get to a, a small a Mexican town that's been overrun by the um, Mexican Federal Army uh, led by General Mapache. Um, I just love how they all name. scream Mapache. Mapache. Uh, Angel in a fit of jealousy and, and rage uh, seeing his former lover uh, with Mapache kills her, um, which leads to a, a moment of tension between the Mexican Federal Army and this uh, wild bunch, uh, the eponymous wild bunch. Um, and eventually able to quell the moment they are given that, that final job in stealing a cache of 16 boxes of ammunition and rifles from the U.S. Army from a bunch of rapscallion rookie uh, recruits in order to give to the Mexican Federal Army for uh, 10,000 uh, gold, 10,000 gold coins or $10,000 worth of gold coins. Yeah, um, the score is successful, even though they are still pursued by Deke. Um, they, on the process of bringing back the 16 boxes, Angel, who is uh, of, of Native American blood, uh, has, has let it be known that he you know, has, has blood tied to the family of the rebels, as the Mexican Federal Army is scourging the land and, and killing the innocents and kind of raping and pillaging their way. And uh, just to let one box fall to the uh, rebellion force, um, they agree uh, and return the 15 boxes of guns and ammunition to Mapache and including a special gift of a nice old Gatling gun. Um, upon the Gatling gun, it's not necessarily a Gatling it's like gun, a machine, it's a machine gun. gun, but it's, it's what you'd expect from the old West. It, it would be a Gatling gun in, in, I guess, in the terms. Well, I think the only reason um, it's not a Gatling gun is because it doesn't have a round, it's, it's, doesn't have a it's round also, container. It's also 1913, so the Gatling right. gun's been out is outdated by that point. Um, they say uh i believe it's it's ingstrom you know dutch ingstrom says that that one of the the last carton of of guns were were lost uh on the the run um to mapache and mapache says no angel stole them and uh takes and tortures and denigrates angel and you know everyone else is left alone um to their devices and their ten thousand dollars worth of gold but Pike and the Gorch brothers and Ingstrom um, decide, you know, after seeing Sykes shot, uh, Sykes being their old compatriot who is kind of staying back and being their horse and uh, saddleman shot by the pursuing Deke forces decide that they're going to make one last stand to try to get Angel back. And so they ride into the village, ask for angel back after he's been dragged across the ground and beaten spit upon and cut up from mapache mapache agrees mapache! And then, <laughs> sorry and then in front of them slits angel's throat in a moment of anger pike and ingstrom shoot and kill mapache 
leaving the entire Mexican national force and the uh, German Ingsman, who's kind of there um, serving or advising the Mexican Federal Army in a moment of shock when they could easily kind of run off. Uh, but in that moment, they, they laugh. Pike kills one of the uh, um, ensigns, the German scouts, and then uh, they have a big shootout where many of the Mexican armies killed and eventually the loud bunch is killed. And um, Deke rolls in with his ragtag group of bounty hunters and the bounty hunters pile up the bodies and ride off with them, hoping to get money, but they themselves are killed um, by the rebellion force who has picked up Sykes and Sykes rolls in, sees Deke sitting down there and offers to have him join the rebellion and Deke laughs and joins the rebellion and that's how we end the wild bunch i saw straw dogs first and um straw dogs is the is the movie that uh, we'll talk about in a couple weeks in case you're keeping score so that is for this week high fidelity and straw dogs that will be on the list uh no it's not or for your punch cards, guys. Well, you mentioned high fidelity. So high fidelity is much higher. Oh, you mean like on mentioned. the list? I thought you meant like next in two weeks. No, no, I meant like I, I was saying for the pe- we've made that running joke of the yeah, people yeah, yeah. keeping track of where they think everything's mm. going to be. I saw Straw Dogs first. Um, Straw Dogs made a much more profound impact on me. Yeah, ditto. Um, in terms of what it was trying to convey, but the Wild Bunch to me was a little more weirdly personal i guess um personal in the sense of it was more closely contained to the art i had consumed uh, growing up my dad loved to watch the rifleman of which sam peckinpah i believe directed five episodes hmm. um and you know he would watch all the other westerns like wanted dead or alive starring steve mcqueen um the Sergio Leone westerns, which of which you mentioned, the Good and the Bad, and the Ugly, and you know, also Hang 'em High. Um, the John Ford westerns, like The Searchers, and, and just all these movies that kind of had this glamorization of the West. You know, there was still violence. There was still the gruff nature of man. There was still this abject sort of disregard for life beyond your own mm-hmm. um and he never my dad didn't really like the he didn't really talk about the wild he said the wild bunch was too violent for him and so i didn't see the wild bunch until the advent actually of the my subscription to netflix through their disc delivery service but Oh, do they still geez. do disc delivery? I think they do, but I, th- I think do it's they? on a much, I have to imagine on a much more limited basis. I would think so. Um, so their disc delivery service, where around the period of 2005, four, uh, 2004, 2005, I would have a two-disc subscription and would have seen about three movies a week through that. Um through them, I saw all of the uh, Vengeance trilogy, um, the Park Chan Wook, Park Chan Wook, like Vengeance trilogy, um, 
I had seen the Michael Haneke films, you know, I just, I just went through or like something like man bites dog. I just consumed as much as like, has, has you took out that credit card for a thousand dollars to get all the criteria. And so did I spend the $12, $13 a month at the time to just constantly be consuming new and new films. That probably would have been a better idea on my part. If only that, if only I had been around when you had done that. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, you missed it by a few years. Damn it. Um, and, and eventually I got Scrawl Dogs by accident. I wanted Stray Dog by Kurosawa, mm-hmm. but rented Straw Dogs by accident. Um, and Straw Dogs, as we will talk about soon enough, but pretty much did a lot to perspective. And, and I became obsessed at that time with Sam Peckinpah. Um, Sam Peckinpah had this weird close relationship with me. Um, he, he grew up in central California. Uh, his family was, was, had, a, had a mountain in the Sierra Nevadas named after them, the Peckinpah Mountain, spelt slightly, spelt differently. That's pretty good. The last name when they came over um it was uh, p-a-u-g-h uh they came over actually they went through the beck the beckworth uh cutoff which is just north of reno where i was um in the 1850s to settled down in central like marysville california uh and it became a bunch of lawyers and statesmen and, <laughs> and, and peckinpah was kind of like this like this wild duck of them but he represented this weird western central californian nevadan sensibility when i saw um straw dogs there's this real weird sense of um Hmm. brotherhood you know even though he was dead two years two years in the ground by the time i was born there's this weird sense of brotherhood i had when i straw to straw dogs So so i sought out a lot of stuff from him. Um, you know, I, I got Pat Garrett and the Billy the Kid and Getaway and um, uh, Ballad of Cable Hook. I've, I've still actually never seen Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Um, but then the last one I settled on, just because it felt at the time I, I needed to make it the penultimate, not the penultimate, the ultimate one. The, the last one was Wild Bunch. Like, I knew that this was going to be the one I had to finish on. I had to finish on the wild bunch. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is early 2006. I sit down Saturday morning, really hungover, which is the best way I think to watch a peck and paw, (laughs) but even made better by the fact that I was hungover morning. And I decided one of the very few times I was just going to, do hair of the dog and keep drinking. And I had a half a, a bottle of Smirnoff vodka and um, some cranberry juice from a party the night before. And I sat there and I just, just kind of like had I didn't I didn't go crazy. I didn't finish the bottle. Like I didn't I didn't have an insane day. But I, no I sat, one's judging. There, had, <laughs> I sat there and just. You know, had some cranberry vodkas and just watched Wild Bunch. 
And I was just taken by it, by this kind of whimsical action middle. And then this abruptly violent, visceral finale. And, and was taken aback by it. And later at night, kind of regained my senses. So it was a Sunday, so I wasn't going to keep drinking. Um, rewatched it. Listen, I had school on Monday, you know. Um, rewatched it that, that night. And just like, it was, a, it was weird to me because it was so violent. And I had seen like like this one of the movies that I had rented around that time had also been Takeshi Miyake films. Um, you know, each of the killer and the sort audition, which we'll talk about. Um, and those had been had been gory and visceral and violent, but the violence hadn't been this pronounced. And as I watched it, I felt kind of uneasy about the violence, and it reminds me. The first time I kind of read Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut, there, there's like moments of really, there was moments of really visceral violence and really visceral sort of like toxic, I don't want to use the word toxic masculinity because that's not the terminology I was looking for at the time, but the really visceral sort of unearned masculinity that were undercut by these moments of like vulnerability. And I found myself after that day, coming back to this movie again and again, and just rewatching it, rewatching it for the fact that it was this violent, masculine film, but it felt really uneasy about that. I felt uneasy about what it was doing. It didn't feel as though it was presenting a cool image on the screen, or it didn't feel as though it was presenting something really intense on the screen just to elicit this sense of emotion or elicit the sense of awe or excitement. And it just kind of burrowed itself into me. Um, in the sense that I was like comparing to straw dogs where, where the motifs of straw dogs from the moment were really apparent to me about what the intention was, but wild bunch wasn't like straw dogs felt like a, like a, like an indictment of that violence, both sexual and physical. Whereas Wild Bunch felt like this sort of um, embrace, but also this distance from it. And it wasn't until I kind of got closer and closer and closer to this movie that I felt as though I came to the realization that the violence was this more of a matter of a fact. It's, it's still stylized. It's, it's, you know, it, it's not natural, but it's just like a presentation of like, this is what it is. Like, and it wasn't, a, I recently listened in, in the research for this episode, I was listening to some of the AFI um, conversations about this. And Leonard Malton talks about this pretty well. He says like, Wild Bunch, and this is a paraphrase, Wild Bunch is violent in the sense of, um, and visceral in the sense of, this is what it's like when a person gets shot. Like it's, still stylized it's still over the top but like when a person gets shot there's blood and we get shot a lot of times like when a person gets shot there's blood and it hurts and when you get shot a lot of times it really hurts and that's what wild bunch was for me mm -hmm. and was a realization of like i was unknowingly comparing it to all these films that come before it where a person would get shot have a wilhelm scream and kind of collapse when somebody gets shot in the wild bunch there's blood 
there was a, a squib pop. Um, and then, you know, you compare it to like, there, there's these weird moments of, of really gross sexuality and, and these guys are just fucking gross about it and it's leading into its grossness. And then there's like these moments of like, like homosexual kind of humor, like where they're, um, you know, where the Gorch Bears are talking about like sleeping with uh, the prostitutes um, while preparing that first score. And it's, you know, Sykes makes that comment about, oh, you know, you guys were having sex together sort of thing. Yep. And they laugh and say like, yeah, of course we were. And it's kind of like this in joke of like, yeah, like, like just this like masculinity, both this like realization of like comfort with that, but also with this notice that like violence begets violence and violence is gross and everything about this, like you look at the Sergio Leone films and they're like, there's like this grossness and this dirtiness to it, but there's still like this certain hands-off theatricality to it. You look at Wild Bunch and all that's removed. Everything is gross. You look at Sykes for the first time and his teeth are brown. His, maybe between the gums are just filled with all the dirt and decay of life. You look at like even Angel, especially like this image of youth and he's covered from the very first moment just in the whiteness of clay. And by the end of the film, he's, you know, he's serrated and, and bloody until he's, his throat is slit. And when a person is shot, they just don't collapse and die. They are shredded. And there is just like this realization. And, you know, this, this comes back to like Peckinpah's experience with the war where he did in World War II, where he didn't actually have any combat experience. But he was kind of like adjudicating um, the Japanese repatriation. Uh, um, Japanese prisoner repatriation in China mm -hmm. uh, following the war and just seeing like the Japanese soldiers being tortured, like having their testicles torn or, or being people being killed by sniper fire still. And just having this re-realization of like, this is what violence is like. This is what death is like. And, and Wild Bunch is interesting, but it, and, and it struck me because it was this first movie um, Maybe since like something like once again, Schindler's List, a movie that would 100% be on my pivotal film list if I ever agreed to watch it again, but I don't. I will never watch that again. Um, it, it straddles this line between violence and theatricality and, and masculinity and theatricality, and what it actually truly means to kill a man, or to see a man shot, to see his skin torn asunder. And what it actually truly means to be a man and and to and divided from that, you know, like like the masculinity of film, you know, that 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 taking in the quote unquote, I hate to say as whores and whatnot, but also like the masculinity of like having vulnerability and having a weird acceptance of um of joking around with it and being secure with the insecurity of it and accepting when you're kind of pushed against the wall um, and accepting like when things are no longer just about yourself, but about a greater thing. And it was just this weird moment where all these thoughts of like my past with the Western and my, my familiarity and, and acculturation with the Western kind of met this wall of, of, of like liberal ideas of like, you know, like this is what it meant to be a man in the West. And this is what it meant to be a gunfighter in the West. And it hit this wall. And like, 
you know, hit this wall of, of not only like Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch, but McCarthy's, you know, Border Trilogy and Blood Meridian and No Country for Old Men and The Road and just imploded and just blew up all these archetypes for me. Just everything fell apart. And like Wild Bunch is that film that sits there has the catalyst, has the dynamite beneath the bridge ah, to blow up the conceptions I had. Very good, very good. Um, so how do you reconcile... So you talked about death. You talked about violence. Are death and violence kind of linked to you, or are they two different things? Because we just talked a little bit about death and Into the... Like when, we were talk, when you were talking about your reaction to Into the Wild... And you were talking about like the savages and diving bell and the butterfly. You talked a lot about death, and you said in your intro that you were going to talk a lot about death as we move forward. Do you see like a link between death and violence necessarily? Or are they two different things? Um, they're very similar to me in the sense that I see death not necessarily has a violent act as it's understood. Um, has this understood of like a man being shot or stabbed or whatnot? But death is just like this violent retearing from life. Hmm. You know, like no matter, even if it's like death by Alzheimer's or death by disease or death by what Alzheimer's would be or death by however mean drowning, like quote unquote unviolent deaths. Like it is, it is tearing asunder from the fabric of understanding that a person has that is life. Like uh, a person's existence from A to B is, is life and death is ripping that. No matter how peaceful it is, it is the ripping of that. So I always see death as an inherently violent act. Well, So here's another thing. And I have another question. So one of the problems I've always had with the Wild Bunch is that like everything you just said has never really meant very much to me. Not from like, uh, uh, like I'm, not the masculinity part. I haven't actually thought about that at all. But just in terms of like the death and violence, like Wild Bunch was definitely not the first Western I saw. I didn't see it until I was probably at the same age that you saw it, um, maybe even a little bit later. And I was watching like a lot of Westerns at the time. Um, but like the, I think the first Western I saw was Tombstone. You know what I mean? And it's not like there's nobody dies in Tombstone. Like tons of people die. Do they die in a different way in Tombstone than they do in in? the wild bunch does it mean something different do you perceive a different kind of i don't want to say reason for death but do you see perceive a different meaning in of death from the wild bunch than from something like tombstone oh no it's it's like something i'd seen tombstone where i'd seen tombstone when i was like seven the reason wild bunch feels different to me is because when i saw it i went into it knowing it predates all of this. I knew I went into it yeah, knowing that it's go. the earliest film to do this and 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 that it's the catalyst for the transition of I mean when Tombstone kills somebody, it doesn't in the same way a John Ford Western would kill somebody, mm-hmm. but it just adds squid. Right. You know, like there is there is a pretense to where a person's torn apart in Wild Bunch. There's not a pretense in, in tombstone well the thing like of, even when bill paxton sprawled out on the pool yeah, table yeah. it's just because it looks good that he's bloody like when somebody is ripped apart in in, in wild bunch there's actually um i think it's it's his name a ql jones ql jones uh who plays tj yep. in wild bunch um says there's a 
four hour assembly cut of wild bunch that was originally made um that they cut down because like wild bunch was worse like uh, the original cut apparently of wild bunch had like heads fucking being shot off and like people like during the machine gun scene like people's heads were being blown off and like when they got shot in the stomach like they were getting cut in half by it and like like he was like yeah there's shots like people's innards coming out and whatnot because like peck and like this is what it's like if somebody gets killed by a machine gun violence, like this is what it's going to look like. And apparently the test audience is salt. They just laughed at it. And Pekka was like, well, fuck, I can't do this. Cause like it, it's now strays into comedy. It strays on a slapstick, but the intent there was just like, it's fucking gross. You know, and you watch wild bunch and you compare it to its contemporaries and like, it's gross. You know, it's not, the blood looks goofy by nowadays standards. Cause it's still stylized. It's still like got that very, deep red it's very red yeah still very it's very red but it's like you could like when somebody gets shot in the head like there's a squib pop and the hat is destroyed and a huge spray of blood and you compare that to anything that stands next to it and it's i compare it to the i mean you have to compare it to the opening of saving private ryan you know a movie we'll talk about as well just throwing out a lot of spoilers um in the Fact where the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan are really fucking gross because Saving Private the opening of Saving Private Ryan isn't trying to be cool, but it's trying to like really dig you into that moment of just like this is what it like, this isn't fun. This We're, isn't awe-inspiring. This is like this is something you want to not have keep happening. Would you draw a line between from Wild Bunch to Saving Private Ryan? I think I could, could. Draw I would I, I couldn't do it right now. Um, Here's I could, I could, I, I, this, I could, at the time where I saw Wild Bunch, I saw them being very similar films and in their intent of death. I think that's probably, I think that's probably accurate. I think one of the things I've always kind of, I've always liked Wild Bunch, and it, but I've, I've, and this is true in my real life as well, not just in my podcast life. Um, which is not at all a real life. Not, this is not the real life. Um, is that right, Brian? <laughs> in real life, we don't have Lawrence Kasdan trapped in our, you know, high-tech tower. Oh, my joke was to your name. It wasn't actually Tom. Um, I never – I don't care about, like, the beginnings of things. Like, I've never cared about the beginnings of things. I don't love tra- – I don't really like traditions – um, I don't really like um, the idea that something is good just because it predates like this other thing. I cared about that a little bit in music, but I think one of the things that happens in music is that people just kind of rewrite songs. It's kind of hard to like remake a whole movie, you know what I mean? But it was really easy for Modest Mouse to take whatever made a Talking Head song a Talking Head song and just be like, "Well, no, now it's us. Now we do that." Um, you need to watch that Godard masterclass where he talks about people accidentally remaking the same movies. Well, it's a thing. So they, but they, they, and well, uh, you know, not to shout out Sean Fennessy again, but Sean Fennessy has been posting these things on Twitter about like these movies that have like the same shots, but they're like unintentional. They're, they have to be totally unintentional. Like uh, there was a John Ford movie and there will be blood where, I mean, maybe that's not unintentional, but they have nothing to do with each other. They're just like the same movie well, shots. We talked about this last week with um, Nicholas Rogue's um, film. Help me remember the movie I just watched last week. 
the famous. I mean, no, which Nicholas Rogue? The, movie uh, not the Donald Sutherland one. Not uh, the Art the Art Garfunkel. Oh yeah, I don't remember the name of that. Um, I can't remember the name of it either, and I just fucking watched it. That's how re- that's how memorable that movie is. But the the stairway sex scene in that movie. Oh yeah, um, with history of, violence. To yeah, history yeah. of violence. I can't yeah. remember. That's terrible. I can't remember the name of that movie. It's okay, but like those films, those those scenes are so thematically and, and similar and shot similar. Like like literally, they're shot in the same way. Just a frame of focus is on different sides of the stairwell. Mm-hmm. Um, that you would like. I wondered if Cronenberg was inspired. Oh, I'm sure he was. That. I mean, those guys. But like, but we don't know if he was. Like, we don't know if that's like it unintentional. Um, Replication, bad timing. Bad timing was the the uh, Nicholas Rogue movie. Um, unintentional mimicry, or you know, just like homage. You don't know. Yeah. Like, and I think that's the same. I think, I think, I think music and film are the same way, where there's like unintentional mimicry. Yeah. Um, but I think to that point, and to kind of tie what I was saying before back to that, is that the movie that I always keep the movie that I thought of when I was watching this last night to do this and I hadn't seen wild bunch in a while was, um, treasure of the Sierra Madre, not because of a, from a violent standpoint, but the idea of like an old school Western where you just have a bunch of disparate, a bunch of characters that come from disparate backgrounds that don't necessarily even like each other that don't have a kind of relationship outside of doing whatever illegal shit that they're supposed to be doing at that given moment. And they're put together to, to accomplish, um, a task of, of some kind. And so where Wild Bunch, I think a lot of people see it as a kind of like explosion of, or, or like a, um, like a, like a release of some kind ushering in a new sensibility in, into, into the movies and into Westerns, I guess. But I, I hate thinking of things just in terms of Westerns because Westerns is such like a limiting Past a certain date, Western is such a limiting like genre. You know what I mean? It's really mm. there's a, a, only a handful of movies that matter after the Wild Bunch in, in reality. Um, it it always looked to me like an ending to something. Like Sam Peckinpah was kind of taking this genre and just like fucking ruining it. You know what I mean? And he's taking all of the, you know, Roger Ebert's great movie review. Um, essay is really funny because he keeps referring to the bunch like like it's like a legitimate thing like the bunch like and i guess they talk they talk about the bunch a little bit but it's like a and like like there's bunches all around you know what i mean like we, you know you and me have have a bunch or something like that you know and it's, chris is in our bunch and jp's in our bunch and maybe there's a maybe there's another guy or two that's in our bunch um but we're just like walking around doing bunch stuff and everyone's got a bunch. And what does the fucking bunch mean? Um, he kind of talks about it as, as a continue. He talks about that in term, and, and you can kind of feel him talking about it in, in, a, in a continuity perspective. Um, but also from the perspective that like if you draw a line between like this and then like Bonnie and Clyde or something like that. And the way that violence is depicted in... Um, movies and especially in the way that like uh movies that referenced things that happened in the past you know what i mean how like we've come from a violent place but i don't see that here i mean this seems like it's a i mean especially in terms of like how the movie 
is structured and how it operates. And this is like a giving up thing. You know what I mean? Like they don't, the, the bunch doesn't go into that like shootout thinking they're going to live. You know what I mean? That's just four guys against like infinity guys. Um, until they just, the guys stop coming and just like all fall down. Um, and then even the kids get involved in the women. You know what I mean? They're just shooting from every corner. There's just somebody shooting at them. And the fact that William Holden going like, bitch. <laughs> yeah. After he shoots at the mirror and then that guy just kind of like walks out and then he turns around and then the woman shoots him. Um, I think to me it works better as an elegy than it does as like a signaling of things to come. And oh I, no no no! I, I would agree. It's 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 a it is a period upon like that era of Western, and that's why like like you look at some of the modern art with the Western, and they use what like Wild Bunch has kind of like this 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 pronunciation point, um, not pronunciation point. They use it as like this um, punctuation point. Sorry, uh, in the um, in the Western, like you look at a, a like in the video game media, you look at Red Dead Redemption, um, where you know you take the role of a guy who's been tasked with hunting down his former um, gang member partner. So you take on the role of Deke, as it were, you know, and it takes place in like nineteen, I think it's like nineteen nine or nineteen eleven. Um, in the death of the West. Like, like, yeah, like media itself has kind of taken on this, this realization that wild bunch kind of signals this, this death of the West. But the way I, I kind of took it was kind of like this death of, um, not this alteration or change in the genre, but kind of like this death of attempted death of the ideation of, um, and it, it, it didn't it didn't end up being it but like like this attempt to like kill this ideation of of what killing was in film or like what being a man was in a movie like mm. these aren't these aren't guys you, you you celebrate these are still pieces of shit and like this movie makes no qualms with like like pushing them as like no it's fine. it's hard they, they, it's hard to watch in 2020 yeah and like fine they they come back they have like this willingness to die for a greater cause and like angels cause and then trying to get back angel, but there's still like, I think, I think there's still a strong intent to paint them as like gross people with their, their predilection. And I, 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 I don't know. It, it's hard to say. I was watching um, the Peckinpah 93 documentary on his life, uh, man of iron, um, where it talks about like his just problematic life. He was, you know, he dies at, 59 from a lifetime of alcohol and cocaine abuse. Apparently Chris Christopherson reduced them to cocaine abuse. By the way, Chris Christopherson in this documentary is just like exactly how you'd expect Chris Christopherson to be in, in life. He's literally just got his guitar the entire time while doing the interview. <laughs> and it's like, fuck you, Christopherson. I got Jason Robard at least being like Jason Robard, but um, I love Jason Robard. Christopherson just keeps seeing him. You're just like, God, fucking damn it. Put your guitar yeah. away. Yeah, so he started um, Matt Garrison uh, with Jason Robard. And um, like Adam McGraw talks about like how Peck and Paul was just terrible like to his to his women, like to the women performers. And like he has, has a problematic history in terms of his drinking and his 
divisiveness to underscore it with producers. He was notoriously hard to work with. Um, he would say he couldn't make a movie sober, so he would just get shit-faced on vodka while directing. Um, in that scene where the Gorsh brothers are with the, the Mexican prostitutes in the wine barrel, like everyone was uncomfortable shooting that scene. And he literally gave them a bottle of brandy and said, drink this bottle of brandy and come back and shoot the scene. And he wouldn't, he shut down production. It's, it's this weird. So it's this, and like, and eventually like it ruins Peckinpah's career to where he, you know, ends up shooting German movies and ends his career before his death shooting music videos. Um, so it's this really weird dichotomy between the man who's like this really toxic personality. You know, he's, he suffers from alcohol and cocaine abuse. He's, he's pretty shitty to the women in his life. Um, he's pretty shitty overall. And he has this pretty negligent, abusive attitude towards everything. But then you compare it to like the subject matter and you can see this weird artistic intent with what he's doing. And I think the thing about Peck and Paw that happens now um, is a lot of people assume, like kind of kind of see the man um, for what he was and not the intent for what he's doing. And I, I think the intent is to paint this kind of like a capsulation of like, like, like violence is gross and these men are gross and what they're doing is gross. And like, no matter, even if they're having this moment of redemption, they're still like gross pieces of shit. Um, but do you think that's what he was, only, do you think that's what he was doing? It feel I know it feels like it because you look at you look at that movie and you look at the two people who survive it, right? Yep. You look at Deke who has Who's... intellectually removed himself from that life, who is upset about the staging of the assault that would take in a bunch of dead bodies, right? Mm-hmm. That would take in a bunch of people dying from the temperance movement who didn't need to die. Um, Pike and you know the rail—I can't remember the railroad barons. That, that character's name off the top of my head. Harrigan. Like, none of them. Harrigan. Don't give a shit. Like it's just about the the end result. Um, you know, Deke cares about like what's happened, and he wants it to be precise. He wants it to be clean. He wants the right men in this. Uh, not just to catch Deke, but also because he wants it done correctly. Um, him, and then you look at Sykes, and Sykes is kind of this really rugged, rash man, but he's kind of like accepted the the position in his age. And also like the biggest thing that matters to him is like his fucking psychotic grandson in that beginning. Like his, his grandson's yeah. a goddamn psychopath. Um, Crazy. And a monster. Yeah. But his only concern is like, did he fight with like honor and have this like weird sense of, um, you know, not running away, mm-hmm. which is this really problematic, obviously view uh, underneath the modern scope. But at least in that time, it was in 1969. You look at that, at least it was like something like, did he at least do the job to the best of his ability um, while respecting the fucked up morality you guys had. And those are the two characters who survive. And even, you know, Sykes, molds himself away from like he he 
as that film progresses, molds himself towards the kind of perspective that Angel has of like, oh, fighting like away from Gorsh, like Gorsh and all them kind of abuse him as the movie goes on. They throw the dynamite on him and everything. They kind of moves towards this idea of like, we're in this together. We're in this as a community. Like, it's not just about this individual masculine or individual sort of ego id driven thing. It's about us has, has, has a, us as a brotherhood and us as a, as an idea. Um, and those are kind of the two ones who in the end are kind of like preserved, who, who survive it. Like the two who rise against this sort of really inherently selfish, inherently self-contained view. They're the only two who kind of are redeemed by it and are allowed to kind of like continue on into the new world. So the and question, that's what I find interesting. Yeah, my question then is, so if that's the case, then we're, we're thinking that stuff like the wild bunch is more self-reflexive than like it appears to be on the surface. You know what I mean? I, I, Oh, I truly think it is like, it's, but I'm also somebody who would like die on the mountain of Peckinpah. Like, so, well, it's, I mean, so I've, I'm kind of indifferent to the wild bunch. I appreciate it's, it's cinematic, it's value in cinematic history, but I prefer straw dogs. Like times a million because this has no real legitimate emotion attached to it where like I didn't, I just assumed everyone was going to die as soon as the movie started. Like even when I first saw it, I was just like, well, there's no way this ends well, you know what I mean? Um, But in straw dogs has like a lot of, a lot of actual, like legitimate human emotions attached to him. This has, you know, this has, it's, it's still a little tropey. You know what I mean? It's still a Western. It still adheres to the values and to the structure of, or, or the emotional structure of what a Western traditionally was. Um, oh, it just sure. adds, it adds like an extra layer of just like ultra, you know, Ultra everything kind of, of ultra violence on top of it, and yeah, an ultra, but ultra violence in every way, like emotional violence and and physical violence, and then you know, blow your head off violence and stuff like that. Um, well, no, and I, I think, I think Straw Dogs just doesn't, and never reaches the audience that Wild Bunch does. Like Straw Dogs is such a more personal sort of contained feature that I don't think. Well, because straw- everyone sees straw dogs because wild bunch is, still, is more real but wild bunch sure. is still billed as fun i think isn't it i mean it's supposed to be like a like a fun movie it's well, it, I, I i suppose if you think about it enough, everything everything it's not finale i think everything's building for fun and that, that finale is not fun no the finale is not i don't fun. think that finale is- the finale is not fun i didn't think it was fun i thought it was like overwhelming it was an overwhelming um sensual experience with that machine gun just going off for like seven straight minutes. It's just machine gun. Um, and then like other things kind of interspersed within, but it's also, you know, to a certain viewer, that's all you want out of a movie. You know what I mean? All you want out of a Western is for someone, a bunch of people to just shoot a bunch of other people. And if a civilian gets in the way, then a civilian gets in the way. 
they got if they have nice boots, you'll take their nice boots. You know what I mean? Um, gold teeth too, and their and their gold teeth. I love how they focus on the gold teeth. It's like there's a million guys out here, and they're all dead. You can take anything you want off of any of them. Like you're taking teeth out of mouths. Um, well, there's there was doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. There was there was actually an assistant in, in that uh, Man of Iron documentary who said like Peck and Paul really focused in on the fact of like no in situations like this they focused on the, the teeth oh, like interesting. in the war situation and that, uh, that's the thing like that's what strikes me is like it, it, it gets to this point where it's like brought it's like hailed up and fun like like that that entire middle sequence of the train moving backwards and like kind of like passively knocking into the the other train car like it's not that violent it just kind of like knocks people on their ass you know the entire middle sequence like the opening sequence is violent um it's kind of jarring the entire middle sequence where everyone gets blown up but they just fall into the water and they're all fine and the train backs up one guy gets shot like it's just it's presented as fun but i think that's it stands in just such weird juxtaposition to that finale um which is which is foreshadowed with like just the massacre of that one mexican soldier who shoots accident like shoots early yeah, you know, yeah. one Mexican soldier shoots early and just gets fucking plastered with like three bullets. Um, it because you're just like that's that's gross and weird. Um, it just leads to that ending where everything's not nothing about that ending's fun. It's intense, but it's not fun. It's fucking gross. See, I don't. I I'm struggling with the word gross, and I don't really want to prolong this conversation because we are we are really we're going into like first episode territory and maybe this is our first maybe this is episode zero volume two you know what i mean we haven't done this and we haven't done a list episode in a long time um the uh the finale is just i don't know i'm distracted by my cat that is just screaming in the background it's like an assault on the senses for sure it is and it's and it's not um it's hard with Peck and Paw. It's hard to kind of tell. The editing is always so weird because um, they'll just show like the same shot happening. They'll intersperse two shots. You know what I mean? So it seems like one shot is not progressing very far, and then they'll go to another shot, and they'll go to back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and they kind of do that like over and over and over again. But the finale has this kind of really. I don't know. It's it's. It's got an emotion to it that isn't isn't necessarily gross, but it's just so pointless. Like the whole thing is just so pointless by the end, because you know they're gonna kill the generalissimo, and um, they're gonna kill everybody, and then everyone's gonna die. When in reality, like I don't know, nobody had to die, or does it not even matter it's, if it's, any it's of these weird, people like, die? It's, it's not necessarily nihilistic or absurdist, but it kind of straddles that line. Well, it's, it's like this. It's this fatalism. It's like it's like really fatalistic in the sense of like this is bound to happen. Well, not even that. I think it's like an, you mentioned nihilis- nihilistic. I think it's like an ultra nihilism in the sense that like doesn't really matter if any of them live or any of them die. It doesn't fucking matter. Um, but for the one second in his life. Pike envisions that it does really matter. You know what I mean? Like, I think one of the interesting things is that they've seen Angel like beat to shit. They know what's going to happen. Like, Ernest Borgnine knows what's going to happen to Angel when he leaves and when he takes his gold. And there's nothing he can do. He's got to save himself. It's like the code of the bunch or whatever. 
whatever Ebert wants to say. But they're just like, oh, we got to have Angel back. I'll buy it. I'll give you half of my share. And he's like, oh, I don't want gold. And they're like, oh, well, what do you want? I'm just happy with the guns, blah, blah, blah. Go see a woman. And he's just like, all right, yeah, I'll go see a woman. Fine. Whatever. Um, Nothing for, like, the last 30 minutes of the movie matters at all. Nothing that anyone thinks or believes makes any difference to anybody. You know what I mean? Angel's already half dead. When they decide, like, oh, we're going to just, we are going to shoot people to get him back. I mean, they say he's not going to make it. Right. Yeah. And Angel's been, even when Ernest Borgnine leaves him, before anything even happens to Angel, I just assume Angel's going to die. And any yeah. moderately, like, perceptive viewer is going to, like, see that scene and they're going to be like, well, that guy's not long for the earth. So, like, all of their, like, blustering and stuff about, like, doing the right thing. And it's not who, as it's not, it's not. The promise, it's who you make it to. It's not the word, it's who you make it to. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean anything. And But I also don't get the impression that Peckinpah means it to mean anything. It almost seems like he means it, that you will, like, the perceptive viewer will pick up, like, well, this is This means nothing. nothing. Yeah. Just literally everyone's going to die here except for these couple of guys. The one that li- like you like you pointed out, the one that lives really strictly by the code of the of the bunch, the old timer, and then like these rebels that actually have something to fight for, something legitimate. They're actually they're the they're the one group that's fighting for for freedom and not just and the guy, money. And the guy who turned against the bunch but is living by code of law now. Right. It's a, it's it's just a, it's a, it's a weird sort of thing that exists well i think that's part of the reason that it is indoors is that it is so weird it's not as easily it's not so easy to write it off or explain as um like something like i said before like treasures of the sierra madre which is i love that movie i love treasures of the sierra madre i like it more than this movie or like searchers or good and bad the sure sure sure. um those are easy those are easy movies to explain it's kind of tough to explain this movie we could actually i mean we've been talking for two hours and 40 minutes now we can actually probably talk for two hours and 40 minutes about just the wild bunch and come kind of come up with like i don't know what he was doing it's it's really hard to say what he was doing actually it turns out we have sam peckinpah right here he, did, he faked his death <laughs> and he's been hanging out for we, we have a cryogenic freezing 30 capabilities in the pivotal film tower sam how do you like the stegosaurus He's just like, I'm scared of coronavirus, guys. I don't know if you know this, but I am 90 years old now and very old. Yeah, you should be. I'm kind of scared of coronavirus. All right, Mario. We did it. We've said a lot of things. We did. I think we we did pretty well, considering there was four times where you cut out. And I was just sitting here like this, nodding my head. I could tell, yeah. And I could not hear a you goddamn did. thing you were saying. You did good. But I, I picked up a context clues. You did and good. That, that worked out. Um, if you would like context clues about what we're talking about and just wondering anything, you could send us a single word response to our Twitter at Film Pivotal, and I will send you a massively long response. You could send us one word, and I will respond with a lot of words because. Either that, or I'm just going to do another run of Slate and Spire. 
So, you know. <laughs> Uh, or you can uh, send us an email to pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com or you can go to pivotalfilm.com where you can see how to uh, you know, see our Twitter account if that's what you're into or a list of uh, the movies on our on our Pivotal Film list or the list of the beers that we drink or how to subscribe to our podcast. Um, we're going to come back next week with another list episode. Um, are we going to do list episode? I had brought up Sight and Sound. I thought we were going to do Sight and Sound next week. Oh, did you want it? up to you what do you want to do, you want to do list you want we, to do list or actually sound? let's talk let's leave it undecided here so that we can talk about oh, it off okay. air and that's not good. be tied to it that'd be good that'd be good so yeah, we'll yeah, decide during the week what we're going to do actually that maybe we'll we'll talk about you know either later tonight or tomorrow um but until then go see a movie whatever movie you can however you can see it drink a beer drink a drink a, a, a micro brew support your local breweries um they're struggling right now yeah stay stay uh safe stay healthy stay smart stay as positive as you can stay and Um, hey if if you go to a hospital or you go to a mask factory wear a fucking mask that's all i'm saying that's all i'm saying all right we will um (laughs) 